It's Sunday, it's 7, and it's such a pleasure to welcome you to the big broadcast, Radio Theater from WAMU 88.5. Hi, everybody. I'm Murray Horwitz, and we're about to re-enter the era of Bob Bailey, everybody's favorite Johnny Dollar. And, for reasons I'll explain later, that gives us a chance to start a series of episodes of another favorite, The Adventures of Superman plus two westerns, Gunsmoke and Luke Slaughter of Tombstone, comedy from the Halls of Ivy, intrigue on suspense, and the conclusion of a two-part case on Dragnet. We'll mark Mental Illness Awareness Week with The Tenth Man and hear the young Old Blue Eyes on Songs by Sinatra. There's lots in store, and to get in on it, you've got to relax, forget about the troubles of last week, postpone worrying about the next seven days and just give over to your imagination here on your Sunday Night Oasis, the big broadcast. So far this year, we've heard four different actors portray the man with the action-packed expense account. And now, in our chronological examination, we've arrived at the run of Bob Bailey, who took over the role for five years beginning in 1955. With him came a new writer, new music, a new announcer, and a new producer, Jack Johnstone. The result was perfect for late 1950s America, and that includes Mr. Bailey's matter-of-fact characterization. The often overblown noir style was gone, and in its place was a different rhythm and a kind of hip tone. There was a new schedule, too. Instead of a weekly half-hour show, each adventure stretched over five 15-minute episodes, Monday through Friday. That meant that these stories were closer in length to a B-movie than a conventional radio show, with more scenes, more settings, and more character development. They're a wonderful addition to the canon of Vintage Radio, and we're going to hear the initial three episodes of the first one now. It's called The McCormick Matter, and it comes from the first week of October in 1955, the CBS Network, and the rebooted series, Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. From Hollywood, it's time now for Bob Bailey as... Johnny Dollar. Mr. Dollar, this is Father Taggart. I'm calling you from Ossining. I'm one of the chaplains here at Sing Sing. Oh, yes, sir. What can I do for you, Father? Well, nothing for me, Mr. Dollar, but possibly for someone else. Michael Cairn, one of our inmates, asked me to contact you. Michael Cairn? Mm-hmm. You remember him? He wasn't sure you would. Old-time grifter and con man who got tied up with an insurance fraud a few years ago? Blonde fella? Yes. Well, Michael wants to see you, Mr. Dollar. Could you possibly find the time to come up here? All I don't know, Father. Is this something important? It is to Michael. Oh, well, uh, look, I'll be in New York sometime next month. Maybe I'll get a chance to stop off. Well, couldn't you possibly make it sooner? What's the rush? He's going to be there quite a while, isn't he? Not very long, I'm afraid. Michael is dying. All right, Father, you can expect me. Welcome to Johnny Dollar. Beginning tonight and every weekday night, Bob Bailey in the transcribed adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account. America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. 
Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar. To the Allied Casualty and Insurance Company Limited, Markham Building, Hartford, Connecticut. Attention, Ed Barth, Controller's Office. This is an accounting of expenditures during my investigation of the McCormick matter. Though you didn't authorize the investigation, Ed, I'm sure that once the facts are out, you will honor the following. Expense account, item one, $7.95. Train fare and incidentals, Hartford to Arsening, New York. I was admitted inside the prison and greeted by Father Taggart. He's a tall, mild-looking man, a Jesuit, I believe. He had a pass all ready for me, and he led me straight to the prison infirmary. Just in here. Michael will certainly appreciate your coming, Mr. Dollar. I hope it satisfies whatever's on his mind. I can't imagine what it would be. You know it was my investigation and testimony that put him in here, Father. He told me all about that, and I'm sure it has nothing to do with why he wants to see you. See, his lungs started to go about two years ago, and there's just been no way to arrest the condition. Does he know how close he is? Oh, yes. And he's not afraid to die. Here we are, Mr. Dollar. Oh. What? Hardly the same man I remember, Father. He's had it bad lately. Lost a great deal of weight. Yeah. Asleep? Yes. Michael. Michael! Oh. Hi, Father. I brought someone to see you. What do you say? Hiya, Mike. Oh, <laughs> thanks for coming. Thanks, Johnny. Thank Father Taggart here. Uh, he's an all right guy, Johnny. He's just like you. I always said you were the best insurance cop. <laughs> here, here, what's all this? I'm kicking out, Johnny. Didn't you tell him, Father? He told me, Mike. <laughs> Guess I didn't live right. I'll be back in a little while. Thanks, Father. You take it easy, Mike. <laughs> A lousy place to die, prison. But I ain't got my choice, thanks to you. Well, it's just that you picked to do a couple of things that the law and some insurance companies didn't agree with, Mike. Uh, I don't hold none of that against you. The guy does what he does. I, I don't know how to tell you this. <coughs> Maybe I'd better get the doctor. You shouldn't be talking so much. No, no, wait. Johnny, look, you know I'm no crybaby. When the doctor gave me the news, I, I got to thinking... I ain't scared to blow out, you understand? I know, Mike, I know. Uh, it's just that I had a wife once, a long time ago when I started out. Oh? Yeah, then I just kind of drifted out of her picture one day. <coughs> ain't got a cough drop, baby. <laughs> yeah, I guess it wouldn't cure what I got. Anyhow, I, I got to do something for her before I... Well, Johnny, I lay here and I get myself an idea. Yeah, Mike? Johnny, if there was some real easy money lying around, would you pick it up for me? Depends on how clean it is, Mike, and where it's lying. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. It, 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 well, it's clean, all right. You can find that out for yourself. All right. Now, now listen. Till they moved me down here in the infirmary, I roomed upstairs with Jojo Penny. You know him? No, don't believe I do. And Carthy from the Hay States. He got his sabbatical three weeks ago. Paroled. Uh-huh. Well, I've been in the camp with a lot of guys, but Jojo Penny <laughs> takes the cake. He's got a little old five-year trick to put in. <laughs> this Jojo, he does it like a vacation. You know, a real picnic. <laughs> Every time he gets a chance out in the yard, he's taking sun. So he don't get the color, see? Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> when they push him in with me, I notice this. And I get to going over in my head. Yeah. Why does a guy whistle in a cell block, Johnny? Why, why is he treating it like a rest home? 
Short term. He's got something outside waiting. That's it, baby. He's got something waiting for him outside. Something that he knows will keep safe. Money. Thought you said this was legitimate, Mike. It is, it is. Now, wait. I didn't ask Jojo anything about this. No, I figured it out myself. Then a couple of times I hear him yelling in his sleep. McCormick, he yells. McCormick. Eh? Makes sense now, Johnny? Not yet. Ah, the big heist, Johnny, the big heist. A few years ago, a rich guy named McCormick out on Long Island or someplace like that gets turned over for $100,000 worth of jewelry. You remember? Vaguely. Eh, well, I'm thinking that Jojo Panny was in on it somewhere. Mm. Else why would he be singing and whistling and chilling himself around this fly trap for five years? Else why would he be talking about that when he's sleeping? McCormick. McCormick. Yeah. Maybe you've got something, Mike. Ah, I know I got something, Johnny. And you got something, too. It... <laughs> oh, no, Mike. Take it easy. Oh, I'm all right. I'm all right. Don't you see? The insurance company must have a reward out. They always do. A reward. Yeah, but Mike, look. I tell you, Joe Joe is the Ginzo that done the job. Or he knows who did it. So, you look into it. Work on it. Maybe turn up the stuff and get the reward. Good clean coin. Yeah. Yeah. Send half of it to my old lady, will you? You keep the rest yourself. What'd you say? Huh? Will you? <laughs> Mike Kern died three hours later. The last living thing he did was wink at me. Expense account item two, $14.20. Train fare and incidentals, Ossining to New York. I arrived at 2.15, dropped my bag off at the New Western, and went over to the Metropolitan Police Station to find out what I could about the McCormick matter. It was all pretty much as old Mike had told me. A Julian McCormick living on Long Island had suffered a $100,000 jewelry burglary in 1951. Twelve suspects had been arrested and released. The case was marked open and unsolved. Allied Casualty had been the insurance company involved. This is the adjustment office. Frank Porter speaking. My name's Johnny Dollar, Mr. Porter. I'm an investigator. Oh, I think I've heard of you, Mr. Dollar. Yeah? Wonder if you could give me a little information about a claim your company handled in 1951. A man named Julian McCormick out on Long Island. Gee, well, long time ago. Uh, what about the McCormick claim? I might have some information on it. I don't know yet. It's a long chance. I'm at police headquarters, and I notice you investigated for the insurance company. I'd like to talk to you. Yeah, sure, but it's kind of late today. Tomorrow, okay? Well, you can tell me this right now. Is there any reward being offered? Gee whiz, kind of falls my sails. How's that? Well, asking about a reward. You sound like you can make full recovery and want to make sure that you'll be paid for it. Well, I said it was just a long shot. How about the reward? Well, that's pretty standard with us on cases like this. Yeah, I think it's 7500 something like that. I'm not sure. Where are you staying? New Weston. Well, I'll look it up, get the exact figure, and call you there. How'll that be? Fine, thanks. That'll be fine. Before I left the police station, I turned out a mug on Jojo Panny. He was a big, broad-shouldered lad with plenty of beef and a list of petty convictions, four of them in New York State. The last one was for carrying concealed weapons. His parole status was good, though, and the parole officer furnished me with his home address. The Allen Hotel, rates day, week, or month, 115th Street. 
when it's open, come on in. Hiya. Looking for Joe Panton. Yes, sir. That's me. My name's Johnny Dollar. Yeah? I, uh... I just came down from Ossining. I saw a friend of yours up there, Joe. Who was that? Mike Cairn. How's Mike? Not so good. He died today. Uh, it's too bad. He was a nice old coot. Kind of liked him. Said if I ever saw you to say hello. Uh-huh. He didn't give you my address. No, I got it from the parole office. You some kind of cop? No, I work for an insurance company. Oh. Buy you a drink? Sure. Why not? Expense account item three, four dollars even for drinks. I wanted to look at Jojo Panny and talk to him and figure out how I was going to go about getting information from him. And the more I saw and the more he talked, the more I wondered if whatever he might have said about the McCormick case in his sleep happened to some other McCormick. After all, a man with a long list of petty thieveries is hardly ever involved in a slick, big-time safe-cracking job. That takes another kind of talent, and one I was sure that Jojo didn't have. So I've just been taking it easy and looking around. I figure I can get a job pushing a truck or maybe a cab if I'm lucky. Got to get something to do. Parole officers kind of hard-nosed about things like that. Yeah. Drink up. Want one more? Oh, no, no thanks. Three's my limit. Like to keep in shape. Sure. Say, uh, you got anything to do? Nothing special. Why? Thought I might go out to Long Island later on tonight to say hello to an old friend of mine. If you haven't got anything to do, come on along. <laughs> You're okay, bub. Sure, why not? Uh, this friend of yours, he's an ex-con too? No, he never did any time. Just a friend. Want to say hello is all. Oh. Rich fella. His name's Julian McCormick. You're, uh, very big with the hellos around here today, aren't you? Anything wrong, Joe? You probably are. Why do you say that? Nothing. Ever know anyone named McCormick? I knew a guy named Arnie McCormick once back in Salt Lake City. We were pals for a while. Oh. Yeah. Arnie was killed in the war. He'd got himself drafted in the infantry. Maybe he's related to my friend Julian McCormick out on Long Island. He wasn't related to anybody, not that bird. I'm leaving. I want to get up early tomorrow. Why not come with me? <laughs> Thanks for the drinks. He drifted off down the street and left me standing there. And one thing I was sure of, he had the name McCormick on his mind. Whether it was the right McCormick or the right case, I didn't know. Anyhow, he was my one big lead. So I was back at his hotel early the next morning and talking to the desk clerk. Penny, did you say room 210? Yeah, that's right. Vamoose. What? He left bag and baggage last night. Well, where did he go? What's his forwarding address? He didn't say. Just left. Here's our star, Bob Bailey, to tell you about tomorrow's episode. Thanks. Tomorrow, there's living proof that a pretty girl can be just as dangerous as a pretty girl. Join us, won't you? Yours truly, Johnny Dollar.
Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, is transcribed in Hollywood. Written by John Dawson, the entire production is under the direction of Jack Johnstone. Be sure to join us tomorrow night, same time and station, for the next exciting episode of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. Roy Rowan speaking. Johnny Dollar. It's Frank Porter, Allied Casualty. Yes, Mr. Porter. Well, call me Frank, Johnny. Uh, you phoned yesterday about the McCormick matter. I got all the stuff about the case on my desk here, and we're still offering $7,500 reward. Thanks for confirming it, Frank. Sure. Uh, you got a tip or something? An old con named Mike Cairn gave me a tip about a guy named Jojo Panny. I'm working on it. Well, need any help? No, not yet. I might. Jojo pulled out of his hotel last night, bag and baggage. Hmm. What are you going to do? I'm on my way to Long Island. Huh? I want to talk to McCormick himself. Oh. Uh, Johnny. Yeah? Let me give you a tip for your own good. Don't bother Julian McCormick unless you've really got something. Could be dangerous. I think I've got something. Tonight and every weekday night, Bob Bailey and the transcribed adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account... America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator... Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to the Allied Casualty and Insurance Company Limited, Markham Building, Hartford, Connecticut. The following is an accounting of expenditures during my investigation of the McCormick matter. Item four, $10 deposit on the car I rented to drive out to Julian McCormick's home on Long Island. And judging by the looks of the place, a safe full of $100,000 worth of jewelry would feel right at home. It was a mansion, and the rugs on the floor were an inch thick. I'm sorry I've kept you waiting. Mrs. McCormick and I were packing for a little trip to Europe. Sit down, please. Thanks. Going to be gone long? Oh, we usually spend several months a year over there. We're a bit late this year. Our reservations are for next week. I envy you, Mr. McCormick. Dollar, the name? That's right. Forgive me, but I don't seem to recall having heard of you before. Oh, that's okay. We never met. I'm an insurance investigator. Oh, really? Am I being investigated or something? No, no, nothing like that. It's just that I might have a lead on that jewelry that was taken from your home a few years ago. Well, that's wonderful. You must tell me about it. Can I make you a drink? No, thanks. You're from the insurance company, Allied Casualty? No, no, I'm not. I'm an independent investigator. Well, why should anyone feel it necessary to call in a... Oh, oh, I see. There's a reward, of course. That's right. Yes, of course. But now, tell me, how can I help you? Well, I'm just checking a few things, Mr. McCormick. I haven't even gone over it with a man who handled the case for Allied... Possibly I have run into something that'll help. I don't know. I'd 
like you to tell me what happened. My safe was opened and my jewelry taken. I mean, how it happened. Well, it was right in this very room. That's the wall safe there. Uh-huh. Mrs. McCormick and I had just returned from our honeymoon. Five years ago, it was. Yeah? All I know is that when I stepped into the library here that morning, the safe was open and everything was gone. Whoever did it was extremely clever and quiet, I must say. Was the safe cracked? No, no, no. It was just opened. Someone figured the combination or something like that. Well, who knew the combination at the time? Only myself, Mr. Dolan. You sure of that? Why, of course. I see. I reported it to the police right away here on Long Island. Then some men from New York City were here, too. And your insurance company? I reported it to my insurance company immediately. They had a man on the scene as soon as the police. A uh, Mr. Porter. Frank Porter? Yes. Do you know him? I've talked to him on the phone. I haven't met him. A very nice chap. He worked very hard trying to recover it. I'm sure he did. Did they have an adjuster? Yes. Uh, how much did you collect, if you don't mind? Not much. What do you mean? Well, it was unfortunate. By keeping that much jewelry in a small house safe, it seems I violated the clause in the contract. It should have been kept in a safety deposit box or some such. Consequently, the matter went into litigation. I'm afraid the court found me at fault. I collected only a part of the insured value, $20,000. So, you can see, I'd certainly welcome a recovery. Sure. The jewelry was in the family a good many years. I had given it to my wife, and I... Well, a man hates to lose things he loves. Yes, I understand. Was Mrs. McCormick here the morning it happened? Oh, yeah? I'd like to talk to her. She's terribly busy, but if you think it's sufficiently important, I'll call her. No, never mind. I'm curious, Mr. Dollar. This case has been closed a long time. At least, no one's contacted me or asked me for any information about it for at least four years. What opened it? A man named Mike Cairn. Huh? Who's he? An old convict up at Ossining who shared a cell for a while with a man named Joe Panny. Uh-huh. Cairn died yesterday. But before he died, he told me he thought Panny had something to do with it. He'd heard him mention your name. Well, it seems to me you should talk with this Joe Panny. I did. And I will some more. As soon as I locate him again. Right now he's missing. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, thanks for the time, Mr. McCormick. You let me know if you learn anything? Sure. Do you... Honestly, think you can recover that jewelry? With any luck at all? That would be wonderful, wonderful. You think so? Why, yes, of course. Mrs. McCormick might be glad to know about it, too. Huh? You said it was her jewelry. I don't know why I said that to him. Just a sudden impulse. But he wasn't smiling when he walked me to the door, shook my hand, and patted me on the shoulder. I had a funny feeling that Mr. Julian McCormick was scared like a rabbit of me. I drove back to the city, had lunch at Walgreens, and dropped into Allied Casualties' New York office to pick up the folder on reward information. I met Frank Porter and liked him right away, a big red-headed man in a tweed suit. Well, gee whiz, Johnny, it makes me feel older than ever doing this. How come? Well, I weighed 15 pounds less when this case started, June 1931. Ah, here we are. Uh, these are pictures of the stuff. Uh-huh. Now, that one they call Tierra del Fuego. Huh? Some necklace, hmm? I can see why. Yeah, and uh, this one was called Imperial, in the royal family of Russia at one time. And uh, this is the other one, Placid. And beautiful stuff. Oh, you can say that again. That all of it? Well, that's about the size of it, Johnny. $100,000 gone. Yeah. 
Help any? Sure. It's nice to know what I'm trying to find. Well, I hope you have better luck than I did. Yeah. Say, uh, who was the police officer on the case? Uh, Martin. Duels Martin. Out of Central? Yeah. We ran down every lead we could find, big and small. The file said you made 12 arrests. Yeah, something like that, but not one of them panned out. Had to let them all go. Martin requested pickups on every big-time jewelry man in the country. Now, I don't think one of them was overlooked. Well... No, Johnny, somebody just simply walked in that house, opened the safe as neat as you please, and walked right out with all of this. Very slick job. Had to be an experienced man. Well, might have been a first job for someone just starting in. He got lucky. Yeah, we thought of that, and we didn't think much of it after a while. Thank you. Gee whiz, Johnny, you know, nobody could be that lucky. Chase the house, know exactly where the safe was, know what was in it, get in, open it up, and get out without anybody... Servants, the McCormicks, or any of their friends even seeing. Mm-hmm, yeah. Well, that wasn't even the hardest part, you see. Not one scrap of this stuff has ever turned up anywhere. Yeah. Well, anywhere. Now, what, a, what did whoever took it do with it? Did he break it down, sell it overseas? What? Not a trace of it. Imagine that. Imagine. You know what I think? I think the guy who swiped all this stuff still has it. I think he's sitting around waiting for it to cool off. Could be. Uh... But it's never going to cool off, Johnny. There isn't a city in this country or across the ocean that isn't on the lookout for these pieces. I suppose. Now, sooner or later, hot boy or lucky boy, well, whoever he is, will make a move. <laughs> Meantime, we just wait. Unless, of course, uh, you've got something for us to look into. Uh, not yet, Frank. Yeah, well, when you have, we'll be right with you all the way. Good, good. How about a drink? Uh, take a rain check. Okay. But remember, we got a whole floor full of lawyers upstairs. They can get up warrants, writs, seizure orders, anything you might want. Yeah. You just let me know when you get somewhere and we'll go to work. I'll do that, Frank. I left Frank Porter and went back over to the parole office to see what had developed with Joe Panny. After all, if he didn't report in, he'd be in violation of his parole, be in real trouble. But nothing had developed. He hadn't put in a change of address, nothing. So I went back to my hotel and had some dinner. Then I shaved, changed my clothes. Expense account, item five, dollar and a half, cab fare. I garaged my rented car, went back to Central Police Station and pulled out the mug on Joe Panny once more, hoping to get a line on some friends or relatives of his where he might be staying. Up till then, things had been going pretty routine. Then a clerk from the parole offices stepped across the hall. Hi, Mr. Dollar. Hi. Thought it was you I saw in here. I wasn't sure. How's it going? Fine, fine. Talk to your friend Joe Joe Panny yet? Not today. Why? You seemed awful anxious to talk to him, is all. I am. Why don't you go see him? You playing games? I've been trying to find out where he is all day. And I already told you. You what? Sure, I gave it to you half an hour ago when you phoned. When who phoned? Sure, about half an hour ago. Look, Joe Panny called in and told me his address. Yeah? I no sooner set down a phone and you call in and said, This is Johnny Dollar. Have you heard from Joe Panny? What? I said, Yeah, and I told you his address. That's all. What address did you say? The Allen Hotel on 115th Street. Same place he was before. What's the matter? You forget? It took me ten minutes to get from the police station over to the Allen Hotel. Ten minutes of wondering who'd put in that call and use my name. I went up the stairs, two at a time, up to the second floor. And right at the top of the landing, I bumped into a dark-haired woman wearing a silver fur piece. Oh! Oh, I'm sorry. I, I didn't see you. It's all right. You hurt? No, not at all. Please, let me go past. I'm in a hurry. Yeah, I'd be in a hurry, too. What do you mean? The gun. What? You should carry it on the inside of your purse. Oh, I didn't... Suppose I take let it. Go! Let go of me! Fingernails, huh? Give it to me. All right, take it! She'd given it to me, all right, right on the side of the head. It didn't knock me out, but it did knock me off balance, so I tangled up with a hall table. And that gave her plenty of time to scurry down the stairs while I got out of the furniture and back on my feet. 
By the time I got down the stairs and out on the street, she was nowhere in sight. Hmm. No one yelled, I'm shot. No one did anything but what they were already doing. Hi. Where were you just now? You weren't here at the front desk. I was out back eating my dinner. Why? Nothing. You happen to see that woman who just ran through here? No. Tall, dark-haired woman, about 30, wore a mixed stole. Me? Yeah. Oh, you're kidding in this joint. You still looking for Joe Panny? He lives here again, doesn't he? Yeah. Have you seen him? Where is he? Out. I sat down with myself and waited. A half an hour later, when the clerk went back to finish his dinner, I stepped over to the desk and borrowed his pass key and went back up the stairs to room 210. I didn't need the passkey, and I didn't need to doubt the clerk. Joe Panny wasn't there. But all of his things were. The curtains were drawn and the windows closed. Every drawer had been pulled out of every dresser. The mattress on the bed was slipped from top to bottom, and the rug had been ripped and turned over. Expense account, item six, one dollar, one drink. For me. I left JoJo's room, went to the nearest bar, sat down, and had a drink. A scared victim, a missing con, a dark-haired woman wearing a mink and a gun, and other things. Right then and there, I decided that Mike Can's tip had been pretty good at that. Here's our star, Bob Bailey, to tell you about tomorrow's episode. Thanks. Tomorrow, a slight case of mayhem. When the right guy turns up in the wrong place. Join us, won't you? Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar is transcribed in Hollywood. Written by John Dawson, the entire production is under the direction of Jack Johnstone. Be sure to join us tomorrow night, same time and station, for the next exciting episode of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. Roy Rowan speaking. Dollar. This is Dules Martin. Lieutenant Martin? Yeah, that's right. I got a message you called while I was out and left this number. Yeah. I want to talk to you about the McCormick case, Lieutenant. McCormick? $100,000 burglary out on Long Island back in 1951. Uh, I was the officer in charge. Who are you? Insurance investigator. I got a tip that an ex-convict named Joe Panny might have pulled it. I'm at Panny's hotel. 
Well, let me know how you make out. Say, listen, his room's been torn apart. Every inch of it's been searched. And when I came here tonight, I got socked by a woman with a gun. Give me that address. Tonight and every weekday night, Bob Bailey and the transcribed adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account. America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator... Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar. To the Allied Casualty and Insurance Company Limited, Markham Building, Hartford, Connecticut. The following is an accounting of expenditures during my investigation of the McCormick matter. Expense account, item seven, two dollars, two drinks. For myself and Lieutenant Dules Martin, NYPD. A big swarthy man who seemed to know what he was about. Martin looked over the damage done by the unknown ransacker of Joe Panny's room, questioned the clerk who was unable to furnish any helpful information, then, because Joe Panny was officially a parole violator, ordered a general pickup. They should be able to get our hands on him pretty soon, Dollar. I hope it's that easy, Lieutenant. Any reason why it shouldn't be fairly routine? No, just a feeling, I guess. I don't know. This whole matter has been flimsy. The tip was weak, but it seems to be paying off. Nothing fits, though. I don't quite get all this, Dollar. How'd you come in on this? Old Mike Cairn died up at Sing Sing two days ago. Before he went, he told me he believed Joe Panny might have pulled a McCormick burglary. It didn't seem likely then, Panny being a small-time auto thief and whatnot. But now it does, in view of what's been happening lately. Somebody sure wants something Panny might have, judging from that room. I never saw one taken apart better, an expert search job. Yeah. Hey, Lieutenant, when you pick Joe Panny up, I'd like to be in on it. He's my only lead in this case, and I want to talk to him again. And it's not asking too much. Now, Dollar, about this woman you saw. Pretty, about 30, dark hair, good dresser, wore a silver mink stole... The gun she socked me with was a little one, a twenty-five or maybe thirty-two automatic. Mm-hmm. You think she might have done the searching in Joe's room? What do you think? She was flustered and upset when I bumped into her, anxious to get away from the place. And, of course, the gun in her hand. Yeah. She sound familiar to you in this neighborhood? No, no. Could be anybody. Yeah. Well, that's about it, Lieutenant. Yeah? No, I got it. Oh, Thanks. I suppose you talked to McCormick, got the full story of the burglary from him. Almost first thing, yeah. Well, I remember him when it first happened. Nice enough, but strange, I thought. This business about somebody phoning the parole office ahead of you to get Joe Panny's address that stops me, though. That's hard to figure. You sure you're telling me everything? Sure, I'm sure. That part sounds crazy. Not if somebody knew I was looking for him, wanted to get him first. But who? How should I know? Well, we'll see what we will see. Uh, Can I drop you anywhere? No, thanks. I'll walk. You let me know when you pick him up. Sure. Two days passed, and I didn't hear from Lieutenant Martin. I finally phoned in, and a supplementary had turned up no leads. Martin had men watching Joe's hotel. His former friends and acquaintances were being checked. Meanwhile, I decided to try and find out who the dark woman in the first stole had been. It seemed pretty obvious that she had just come from Joe's room that she knew him or was connected with him in some way. So once more, I combed over Joe Panny's file at headquarters, this time looking for a woman's name. The only one mentioned was an ex-wife who had divorced him six years before. Her name was Iris Carter. At 
the Bureau of Vital Statistics, the marriage certificate and record of divorce proceedings gave me a composite picture of an unhappy and turbulent three-year marriage. It also gave me a general description of Iris Carter that could very well fit the woman I'd seen briefly in the hallway outside Joe Panny's hotel room. There was a six-year-old address to start on. No, ma'am, I'm not Eunice. Oh, no, you sure ain't. You seen her? I don't know. I really don't know her. Oh. Well, what do you want? I'd like to talk to the manager. I want some information. What's your name? Johnny Dollar. What kind of information are you looking for? Are you the manager? Yes, sir, I am. Well, I'm trying to locate a woman named Iris Carter. She might have used the name Iris Panny. She was married once to a man named Joe Panny. Lived here about six years ago. Were you here then? I was. Did you know her? I did. Did you know him? Yeah. He went to jail. Does she live here now? She don't. Do you have any idea where I can find her? I don't. Well, uh, do you happen to know if she ever Why worked do you want or... her? Just to talk to her. When did she move out? Oh, long time ago. Five years, maybe. Uh-huh. What's your business? Insurance. Oh, <laughs> What's up? Oh, nobody around here buys insurance. <laughs> well, we don't have to go into that. If you can think of any place I might get a line on her, I'd appreciate it. It seems to me she worked at a bookstore down the street. Down what street? Out there. Block or two down that way. I think she worked there. I don't know. You can try. Thank you. I will. My, you polite. You tip your hat. So tell me, do you remember what she looked like? Sort of, yeah. Well? Oh, about as tall as I am. Nice, pretty girl. Blonde or brunette? Dark hair, almost black. Know any of her friends when she lived here? No. No, I couldn't tell you that. Why? Oh, I might look up one of them and ask her about her, that's all. You ask at that bookstore. I think she worked there. The bookstore Iris Carter Panny had worked in was as dismal as the neighborhood. The proprietor, a Mrs. Olds, yielded a little more helpful information than Iris Carter's former landlady. Yes, Iris had worked there for about six months. She'd quit almost five years before. No, she didn't know where to find her. Expense account, item eight, one dollar and two cents, lunch. I had it in a neighborhood diner called the Showboat place where Mrs. Ohl said Iris Carter had frequently eaten. The restaurant manager remembered Iris vaguely. She also remembered Iris's boyfriend. I asked for a description. She did better than that. She gave me his name, occupation, and address. An old rehearsal hall two blocks away. five-man combo working there was really putting it out. Yeah, and the minute I saw him, I knew the boy wearing the trumpet was the one I was looking for. Just good-looking and smooth enough to go with a girl Iris Carter sounded like. Smooth trumpet, too. Okay, guys, take five. I'm looking for Jack Lang. You found him. I'm Johnny Dollar. Could we talk a minute? That's about all I got, Mr. Dollar. 
Want to smoke? No, thanks. Oh, man. Gets real tired out about this time of day. Yeah, imagine it does. The way you put it on Well, everybody do his own racket. <laughs> What's yours? Insurance investigating. Okay. Now what? Well, I've been asking around the neighborhood, and they tell me you once knew a girl named Iris Carter or Iris Panny. Iris Carter. Go on. I'd like to find her and talk to her, and I thought you might be able to help me. Go on. I want to talk to her ex-husband most of all. I thought somehow she might know where to find him these days. He's in the can. He was released three weeks ago. No. Any ideas? No. I thought finding her might be a shortcut to him. I wouldn't think so. They were all washed up when I knew her. When was that? Five years ago. She hadn't seen him for over a year then. Uh-huh. She didn't have much use for him. I don't blame her. How long did you know her? No. We went together for a while while she worked at some crummy bookstore. Then she moved away, and I didn't see her after that. I think she said something about going back to Ohio. You think? I don't remember offhand. Well, let me put it this way. As far as I know, she's in no trouble. The one we want is her ex-husband. You'd be helping a lot if you could tell me where to find her. I don't know. I honestly don't know, and I sure wish I did. I'd like to find her myself. Why? Well, when she went with me, I... Well, wasn't any good. I think she just walked out because she was tired of losers. Sick up to here, you know what I mean? Can't blame her. He gave her a pretty bad time. I didn't do much better. But now I got something. It's this little five-piece outfit. Not much, but something. I'd like to show it to her and say, Iris, this is mine. You kind of had it bad, huh? Bad as a guy like me can get it. I know I'll probably never see her again as long as I live, but... Boy, if I never... Another one like her ever shows up. I'm going to be ready, Dad. Ever see her? No. She must have been something. Here. Take a look. Nice, huh? Yeah. I take it back. What back? About seeing her. I've seen her. When? Where? Two nights ago in the hallway outside Joe Panny's room. You, you sure? I'm sure. She hit me with a gun before she left. The picture he had flipped out of his wallet was old and well-thumbed. It showed a sultry kind of face that could have been 20 or 30 or 40. A wide, frank, smiling, happy mouth. Not the kind of girl I would imagine could ever be married to a Joe Penny. But there was no doubt about it. She had been married to him, and I had seen her. On my way back to the hotel, I dropped in to check with Lieutenant Martin. Hi. Hi. Doing any good? Any lead on Joe Panny? Nothing so far. This may take longer than I thought at first. Well, I've been out looking for his ex-wife. I didn't find her, but I found a few people who knew her. She was the one at his hotel the other night. Name's Iris Carter. You sure? Positive. I saw her picture. We better try to pick her up, too. I'll put it out right away. Fine. Well, I'll keep in touch. Oh, wait a minute. Don't go. Huh? We had some action here today. Sit down. Thanks. Julian McCormick called up, reported you. He said you came out there bothering him a couple days ago. He said he doesn't want to be bothered. Well, I only talked to him to get his story on the burglary. And I told him as long as you didn't break the law, there was nothing we could do to stop you from investigating. But he didn't like it. He seemed perfectly willing to cooperate with me when I talked to him before. Yeah, well, sometime these rich... Excuse me. 
Martin here. That's right. Well, how long ago? Okay. Well, they found your boy, Joe Penny. What? Yeah. He's on his way to the morgue. Harbor Patrol picked up his body a couple of hours ago, loaded down with slugs. Some case. And that ain't all, Johnny. Huh? His feet were burnt. Here's our star, Bob Bailey, to tell you about tomorrow's episode. Thanks. Tomorrow, a phase of this case that ought to be called the talking corpse. For believe me, this one said plenty. Join us, won't you? Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar is transcribed in Hollywood. Written by John Dawson, the entire production is under the direction of Jack Johnstone. Be sure to join us tomorrow night, same time and station, for the next exciting episode of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. Roy Rowan speaking. Bob Bailey, as yours truly, Johnny Dollar, in the first three installments of The McCormick Matter from October 3rd, 4th, and 5th in 1955. We'll have the concluding episodes next week here on the big broadcast over WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. That different Johnny Dollar format opens up some other 15-minute segments here each week, and it gives us an opportunity to play some of the serials that we don't usually have time to follow here on our show. And we're going to start with a real listener favorite, The Adventures of Superman. This is a five-part adventure that'll stretch over three weeks. It's called A Mystery for Superman, and it stars Bud Collier, dramatically altering his voice whenever he changes into Superman. Speaking of voices... We can't be certain, but we're pretty sure it's a white actor we'll hear impersonating an African-American sleeping car porter. This first installment of the story aired on February 27th in the wartime year of 1942 as part of the syndicated series, The Adventures of Superman. Presenting the transcription feature, Superman! It's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman. Yes, it's Superman, strange visitor from the planet Krypton, who came to Earth with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. Superman, who can leap tall buildings at a single bound, race a speeding bullet to its target, bend steel in his bare hands, and who, disguised as Clark Kent, mild-mannered reporter for a great metropolitan newspaper, fights a never-ending battle for truth and justice. And now to our story. 
In response to editor Perry White's urgent telegram, Clark Kent, Lois Lane, and young Jimmy Olsen are speeding back to Metropolis aboard the Tri-State Limited, puzzled as to the reason for White's almost frantic summons. As we join them in a drawing room, the crack streamlined express is thundering through the night. Jimmy, you don't have to finish that box of candy in one sitting. I've only had five pieces. Only five pieces? Now go on, put the cover on the box. That's all we need now to take you off the train with a stomach ache. Clark? Hmm? Yes, Lois? I don't suppose you've had any bright ideas. Bright ideas? You know what I mean. Have you thought of any reasons for Mr. White wanting us back in such a hurry? Now look, Lois, it's 10.30 now. We just pulled out of Glenwood. The next stop is Walden Junction and then Metropolis, the end of the line. In exactly 27 minutes, you'll know all the answers. Really, there are times when you can be the most exasperating person. How you can sit there with your nose buried in a newspaper is beyond me. Haven't you any curiosity? Maybe the Daily Planet building burned down. It'll be ridiculous, Jimmy. Well, you can't tell. Look. Yes? Exactly what did Mr. White say in the telegram? Well, not very much. I, I told you. You weren't very specific. Well, neither was he. Maybe a German spy set a bomb off. Jimmy, little boys should be seen and not heard. I'm not little, and a German spy could set off a bomb, couldn't he? Yes, he could. Clark, haven't you any idea what Mr. White wants? Oh, Lois, I wish you'd stop eating your heart out. We'll know exactly what he wants the moment we get in. You think he'll meet us at the station? I'm sure I don't know. Talking to you is like talking to a brick wall. All right, go on, read your paper. As far as I'm concerned, I don't care. Who's that? Come in. Uh, excuse me, I got a telegram from Mr. Kent. Oh, thank you. You're welcome, sir. You're welcome. Well, why don't you open it? I will. It's not going to fly away. Jimmy, I said no more candy. Oh, just one piece. I said no more. Okay. This is strange. Strange? Yes. What do you mean, Carl? Another telegram from Mr. White. Gosh. What does it say? Listen. We'll meet you and Jimmy at Walden Junction. Tell Lois to proceed to Metropolis and report at office. Signed, Perry White. Oh, I don't understand that. Mr. Ken and me are supposed and to... And I... Mr. Ken and I are yes. supposed to get off at Walden Junction. That's the next stop. And you're supposed to go on to Metropolis. That's right, isn't it, Mr. Kent? According to the telegram. What's the idea? I don't know, Lois. Well, orders are orders. Ah, everything packed, Jimmy? Yeah, uh, except the candy. I'll carry that. Clark, what's behind all this? You know as much about it as I do. Yeah, it sounds like the station whistle. We'll be pulling in in a minute or so. Put your coat on, Jim. Uh, why can't I get off at Walden Junction, too? Well, I can think of one very good reason. Mr. White wants you to get off at Metropolis. Something very strange about this whole business. Something I don't like. You're tossing it off much too lightly, Clark. No, I'm not. But there's one thing you've got to remember, Lois. A good soldier takes orders. I suppose so. Come on, Jim. See you at the office, Lois. Oh, boy, oh, boy. 
how much longer are we going to hang around the station, Mr. Kent? Gee whiz, that cold wind goes right through me. Well, go into the waiting room, Jimmy. It's warm there. No, I'd rather stick with you. I don't understand this at all. That telegram was clear enough. Oh, are you sure it had to get off at Walden Junction? Positive. Right. Here it is. Now, let's look at it under that light there. Ah. What does it say? We'll meet you and Jimmy at Walden Junction. Well, this is Walden Junction, all right. Here's Mr. White. We've been waiting here for almost... What's the matter, Mr. Kent? Jimmy, we've been tricked. Tricked? What do you mean? This telegram is a fake. It was written on a typewriter. I should have noticed that a long time ago. Golly. But why should anyone send us a fake telegram? There could only be one reason to separate us from Lois. You mean... Now, look, Jimmy, there's no time to waste. You trust me, don't you? Why, sure. Now, listen carefully. There's a local train coming through in 15 minutes. Now, here. Here's some money. You buy a ticket and ride into Metropolis. What? Go right to the office. You mean alone? Yes. I have important work to do, and it must be done fast. Oh, but I... You said you trusted me, Jim. Okay. Good boy. Now, you stay in the waiting room until the train pulls in. If you get to the office before I do, keep Mom about all this, understand? Uh-huh. So long. So long. Kick myself up falling to that fake telegram. Well, maybe it's not too late. Maybe I can still catch the limited as Superman. Oh, Jimmy can't see me now. Just stepped into the waiting room. Up! Up! And away! Streaking through the darkness, Superman follows the steel rails like a bird in flight. Picks up the Tri-State Limited halfway between Walden Junction and Metropolis. Dropping to the darkened observation platform, he enters the train as Clark Kent and hurries to the drawing room in which he left Lois. Now, this is it. Drawing room C, car 42. Lois! Lois! That's funny. What? The door's locked. Lois! Lois! I understand it. Oh, Porter. Didn't you all get off of Walden Junction? Yes, but I... Well, I, I, I got on again. Can you unlock this door? Well, there, there's a lady in that drawing room. I, I know there is. The young lady who was with me. You remember, don't you? Uh, don't you answer? No. Have you a key? Yes, sir. A rat key. I'll just see how you get off of Walden please. Junction. Yes, a rat here. There's the she's open now. Thank you. Thank you. The room's empty. Well, no, sir, that can't be. I tell you, it's empty. Oh, the train halted, then it's up. Come down. Yes? Clark Kent is back, Mr. White. Oh, he is, is he? Well, you'll send him in. I'll give him a piece of my mind. What's he think we're running here? A high school yearbook? Close the door. Now, Kent, what's the big idea? Just a minute, please. Something serious has happened. Hmm, I'm glad you realize. Afraid you don't know what I'm talking about, Mr. White. Oh no, no, of course not. I'm a dope, an adult-painted fool. Just a minute. I don't understand English. You can hold your temper in check for a moment. I'd like to discuss something with you. No, you would. Well, where were you when I returned from Washington? Now, look, did it ever occur to you that I might want to discuss something with you once in a while? Take it easy, will you? You knew we were at the Bar O Ranch with Jimmy. Matter of fact, we were just leaving when your telegram arrived. My telegram? Yes. Are you crazy? You said you wanted us back at once, that something important had come up. Ah, you're out of your mind. What? In the first place, I didn't know where you were. In the second place, if I had telegraphed, it would have been to tell you that you're fired. Wait a minute. You mean to say you didn't send me a wire early this evening at 7 o'clock? I did not. Oh, wait a minute. 
Am I crazy? Mm, I wouldn't be a bit surprised. Oh, where's Lois? One thing at a time, Mr. White. You did send a wire to the Barrow Ranch, didn't you? No, no, I didn't. Now, listen, Kent. I don't understand this. There are a few things that I don't understand either. Now, where's Lois? I don't know. Wasn't she with you? Yes, but she disappeared off the train. What? Now, wait. She disappeared off the train. Please, let's get things straight. It wasn't you who sent the first telegram. How many times do I have to... All right, all right. Kent, if this is your idea of a joke... It's no joke, Mr. White. It's pretty serious. Now, listen to me. Jimmy ran into some trouble at the Bar O' Dude Ranch. Lois and I went up to straighten it out. We were about to return when a wire came through signed by you. It said to come back at once. Something important had come up. I didn't wire you or anyone else. I suppose not if you say so. Well, anyway, we took the first train out to Tri-State Limited. Just after we pulled out of Glenwood, the porter gave me a telegram. Again, it was signed with your name, and it said for Jimmy and myself to get off at Walden Junction and for Lois to go on to Metropolis. I never sent that telegram either. I know it. That one was a fake, but I fell for it. Jimmy and I got off. We waited around for ten minutes before I realized the telegram wasn't authentic. Then I followed the train. Oh. Why, I, um, I, I hired a car. You mean to say you caught the limited in the car? Oh, well, you see, it, it, it was a fast car. I mean... All right, all right. Go ahead, go ahead. Now, now, now what happened? Well, I got aboard the train. The door to Lois's drawing room was locked. The porter opened it. But she wasn't there. Hmm. Probably in the club car. No, she wasn't. We searched the train thoroughly. She wasn't on board. Kent, do you expect me to swallow that? The Limited doesn't stop between Walden Junction and Metropolis. She couldn't have gotten off. Mr. White, I tell you, she wasn't on that train. She's gone. Vanished. Now, look, Kent. Uh, wait a minute. Very White speaking. Hello, Mr. White. Lois. Is Clark Kent there? Yeah, yes, he is, but where under the sun are you? Look, let me speak to Clark, quickly. Yes, but I know that... Oh, all right. Here, Kent. She wants to speak to you. Okay. Lois, what in the name of... Look, I haven't much time, Clark. Listen, don't worry. Everything is all right. I'll call you at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. But, Lois, you can... Goodbye. Wait a minute, look. Shut up. Listen, Kent. What's this all about? That's what I'd like to know, Mr. White. Well, it looks like someone is weaving the web of a baffling mystery around Clark Kent, Lois Lane, and Perry White. How did Lois vanish from the train, and where is she now? And who was responsible for the false telegrams? This is just the beginning, so don't miss a single mystifying episode. Tune in and follow the story with Superman! Look! It's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman. Superman is a copyrighted feature appearing in Action Comics magazine. Part one of A Mystery for Superman, one of the adventures of Superman that aired in the winter of 1942. It's the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arold Bailey is our co-producer. Kenny Pirog and Mike Kidd are the audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington in HD at 88.5 on your smart speaker and at WAMU.org. On Gunsmoke tonight, a story whose title might make you think it's a self-help episode. It's not. But it is called How to Sell a Ranch. Maybe that's why it aired on April Fool's Day in 1956 on the CBS series Gunsmoke. Gunsmoke. 
Around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gunsmoke, starring William Conrad, the transcribed story of the violence that moved west with young America, and the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man, Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. The first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful and a little lonely. I swear this is the lonesomest looking ranch in the whole state of Kansas, Mr. Dillon. That's no place for a man who likes company, Chester. Three days' ride from Dodge, 150 miles. It'd get me talking to myself. Now let's driven old Tub Claver a little crazy. Not so crazy, he ain't finally selling out. Yeah, let's leave him here, huh? Mm-hmm. eyes on old Tup in over a year. Yeah, he hasn't changed any. And that's what worries me. What do you mean? Well, I'm not sure the old man's competent when it comes to business like selling a ranch. Oh, there he is. Hey, Tup! Hello! Hello! Look at his hair. He must use it for a napkin. That's bear grease, Chester. Yeah. Looks like he ain't washed it since he was a boy. Oh, Tup, how are you, huh? Fit to fight day or night. <laughs> Hello, Tup. Well, I see you're looking sloppy as ever, Chester. I'm looking sloppy. What, Tup, doggone your old hide? <laughs> never mind, well, Chester. Never mind. Well, now that's how I remember him. <laughs> Tup, uh, we've been up on the Republican River. We uh, heard that you're selling your ranch. Yeah, want to buy it? No, 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 no. We just thought we'd stop by and see how you're doing. That's oh, all. I'm doing right good, Marshal. Well, uh, why are you selling, Tup? Oh, I'm tired of being alone. Need help out here, getting old. Nah. How much are you asking for the place? Ten thousand. And it ain't worth a dollar more. You want it? <laughs> no, I don't want it. Uh, but have you found anybody who's interested? That's why I'm riding to Dodge next week. I'll find somebody. Well, I wish you'd come see me when you get there. Yeah, maybe I will when I get there. You can buy me a drink, Marshal. <laughs> I'll be glad to, Tup. Well, so long. Bye, Tup. Goodbye. If the ocean was whiskey and I was a duck, I'd dive to the bottom and drink it all up. Goodness, Mr. Dillon, ain't that awful? Uh, He's a fine old man, Chester, for all his loose-minded ways. He's half simple. He ain't got a lick of sense. The first fellow who comes along is going to rob him blind. No, he isn't, Chester. Not if I can help it.
Ah, hello, Doc. Well, sit down, sit down, my boy. Uh, no, thanks, Doc. I had enough sitting last week. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, say, that was a long ride you made. Well, we didn't accomplish much, but we saw an awful lot of country. You know, that's what I like about your job. You get paid whether you accomplish anything or not. You know, you're complaining because you can't collect money off of dead men, Doc. Oh, is that so? Now, you talk easy, Matt, Dylan. <laughs> you're forgetting how you might get sick. I'm too healthy to worry about having to stay on the good side of you, you miserable old... All right, now you've done it. Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, yes. Now, now you're going to have to buy me a drink. <laughs> My pleasure, Doc. Uh, let's go into the long branch. Eddie, <laughs> I knew if I waited long enough, some conscience-stricken heathen would come along and ask me into a bar. I don't mind, Doc. It's some poor devil you might have to operate on this afternoon that I'm worried about. After <laughs> uh, you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, oh, well, now, shall we stand at the bar? Wait a minute, Doc. What? That's Tup Claver sitting over there. Oh, yes. I saw him on the street a while ago. Who's that with him? I don't know, Matt. Uh, look, Doc, order me a drink, will you? I'll be with you in just a minute. All right. Ah, hello, Top. Oh, sit down, Marshal. Sit down. I uh, thought you were going to look me up when you got to Dodge. Oh, uh, Marshal, uh, this here's uh, Mr. Wayne Rutman. How do you do, Marshal? Mr. Rutman? He's aiming to buy my ranch. Oh, is that so? Where? Well, he's from Kansas City. He wants to see the ranch before we make a deal, though, Marshal. <laughs> well, I can understand that. You want to see the money, don't you? Well, it's your ID. Well, of course, and you will see it. Two weeks from now, I'll have it deposited in the bank here. Well, it'll only take a week to ride up and see the ranch and come back. No, I want to send for the money first. Why? I ain't going to sell without a get paid anyway. <laughs> Evidence of good faith, Tup. I want you to know I have the money that I'm ready to buy before I look the ranch over. Yeah, don't make sense to me. Marshal, do you see anything wrong in doing it my way? Well, I don't see it makes any difference. There you are, Tup. Uh, I'll be going now, and two weeks from today, I'll meet you at the bank. Agreed? Sure, sure, I'll be there. Good. Bye, Marshal. Bye, Mr. Robin. Ho, ho, dead doe, you never know. My, 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 my. Uh, what? Ho, ho, dead... Uh, never mind, never mind, Marshal. Nice feller, huh? Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, where did you run into him? Oh, at the hotel this morning. I told everybody I was selling my ranch, and his eyes lit up, and he bought me a drink. Oh, I got to come to town more often. When do the ladies get here, Marshal? <laughs> you never mind the ladies. <laughs> but I'm going to be rich. $15,000 worth. What? Yep, $15,000, Marshal. But you were only asking ten. Well, I told him that. But he said that he's as rich as can be and wants to do right by an old man like me. Now, ain't he a nice fellow, Marshal? Yeah, yeah, maybe. But uh, I'll be there to find out for sure. Mr. Bodkin. Well, come in, Marshal. What can the bank do for you today? Oh, it's been two weeks, Mr. Bodkin. I told you I wanted to be here when Rutman and Tup Claver showed up. Oh, of course, of course. 
But Wayne Rutman's already been here, Marshal. Oh, he has? Mm-hmm. Deposited $15,000 cash, just like that. It's an awful lot of money. Mm, I wish there were more businessmen like him around. Well, morning, gentlemen. Mm, here's Tup. Oh, it's you, Marshal. Hello, Tub. Oh, where's Ritman? He said he'd meet you at the stable about noon, Tup. He'll be ready to ride up to the ranch with you, and the money's here, 15000 It's been deposited. I'll take your word for it, Bodkin. If Rutman decides to buy, he'll give you a note for the money. All you'll have to do is come here and collect it. Well, sounds easy. Nothing to it. My, 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 my. Well, I don't see anything wrong with the deal, do you, Mr. Bacon? Certainly not. You're a lucky man, Tup. If he decides to buy, of no, course. Oh, he'll buy. Place looks fine. I just got back this morning. Ah, so that's where you've been. Huh? Riding and dreaming, Marshal. Dreaming of money. <laughs> well, good luck, Tup. Eh, there ain't no such thing, Marshal. Luck's for fools and sinners. You'll see. Oh, yes, you'll see. If the ocean was whiskey and I was a dog, I'd drink it. Ah, hello, Kitty. Uh, Matt. What's the matter? Did I scare you? <laughs> I guess we were concentrating pretty hard on those dresses in the window. Uh, Matt, this is Mary Emmett. Now, how do you do, Mary? Hello, Marshal. Mary's an old friend of mine. She's just passing through on her way to Denver. Oh, why don't you stay in Dodge a while, Mary? They got enough pretty girls in Denver. Kitty's told me about you, Marshal. I don't believe a word you say. Oh. Well, <laughs> then I guess you really are old friends. Oh, it's been 15 years, hasn't it, Mary? Ever since New Orleans. <sighs> We were awful young then, weren't we? Well, you grew up pretty fast in that town. Oh, we sure did. Where's Chester, Matt? I'd like him to meet Mary, too. Oh, he went in the bank, Kitty. He claimed he had to change some money. Well, I wish I had some money. I'd change it right in this store. Look at that purple dress, Matt. Kitty, you got a hundred dresses. Well, then I've lost 95 of them. The others are in rags. Well, the one you're wearing looks nice. This thing would look good on a gal from the deep piney woods. <laughs> Kitty, you haven't changed a bit. As long as I've known, you've complained about your wardrobe. <laughs> well, I'll stop one day, Mary, when I get a million dollars. Mr. Dillon! Oh, it's Chester, Matt. Oh, yeah. Well, look, uh, uh, maybe I can join you two later and have a drink with you. Huh? Hope you will, Marshal. Okay, we'll do that. Bye. Hey, Mr. Dillon, they're having an awful row in the bank there. Oh, who is? Mr. Botkin and that fellow Rutman. Oh, is Rutman back? Got back this morning, he says, and he wants his money. He's decided not to buy Tops Ranch. Oh, what's the trouble? Well, Mr. Botkin says that... Well, you better ask him. There they are at the teller's window. Now, you keep quiet a minute, Rutman. Marshal Dillon, you settle this. What's the trouble, Mr. Botkin? He won't give me my money, that's the trouble. You haven't got any money here. $15,000 is all. Here's your note, Rutman. You signed it. My note. Uh, can I see it a minute, Mr. Barker? Give whatever money I have in bank to Tup Cleaver. Signed, Wayne Rutman. It's impossible. Well, isn't this your writing, Rutman? Of course it's his, Marshal. Tup brought it in two days ago. Two days ago? Now, that's a lie. Three days ago, I left him at his ranch 150 miles from here. Nobody could ride that in one day. Well, somebody's sure lying. He was here, and I gave him the money. Then it's up to the Marshal to get it back. Right now. I'll be waiting at the Dodge House, Marshal. Mr. Dillon. Yeah, what, Justin? 
I got an idea where old Tup might be at. Well, let's go find him. Sitting right on the porch. What's he doing way out here, Chester? Well, sir, he told me he didn't like the Dodge house and he was going to board here at the Wood of Clancy's. Oh? Uh, did he mention that he'd have a shotgun across his lap? Well, now, what's he doing with that? Oh, hello, Marshal, Chester. Come set a spell. Who's the gun for, Tup? Wayne Rutman? Can't never tell, Marshal. Man carrying as much money as I am. No, sir. Uh, Rudman's kind of upset about that money, Tup. He is? Mm-hmm. He wants it back. Wants it back? Well, I don't understand, Marshal. He gave me the note. Yeah, I know. I saw it. Well, is there something wrong with it? No, Mr. Bodkin says it's in his handwriting. Well, then what's the fuss? Marshal, I don't want to do nothing illegal. You know that. You, uh, gave Rutman the deed to your ranch, didn't you? Of course I did. Why else would he be giving me that note for the money? Tup, how did you ride 150 miles in one day? Now, you ain't saying that's illegal, are you? No, it's not illegal, Tup. It's impossible. Yeah. Marshal, we ought to get this whole thing straightened out. I think we better, Tup. Then you tell Wayne Rutman to be at the Long Branch tonight. We'll settle it there. I won't be accused of no wrongdoing, Marshal. No, no, not me. Well, there he is, Rutman. The same table where you first made the deal. You stand up on me, Marshal. You make him give me back my money. Well, evening, gentlemen. Sit down. Hello, Tup. I, uh, I hear you got a complaint, Rutman. What's wrong? I changed my mind. I don't want your ranch. You don't want it. Here's the deed. Now hand over the money. Oh, but we made a deal. I gave you the deed, and you gave me the note for the money. Well, I said I've changed my mind. No, it's too late, Rutman. You've already bought the ranch. It's yours. $15,000 for that place. Don't be a fool. And I didn't make you pay it. Rutman... Don't you tell me something. Tup only asked 10000 Now, why did you offer him fifteen? Well, I... Wait, uh, I'll answer that, Marshal. He wanted to make sure I wouldn't sell it to nobody else. He had it all figured out. He rode out to my ranch with me, and we made a deal. I gave him the deed, and he gave me the note. Then he said he had to go on to Hayes City and wouldn't be riding back with me. But I know that he aimed to get back here as fast as he could and draw his money out of the bank before I could get here with his note. That way, he'd have both his money and the ranch. <laughs> he'd get the ranch for free. This whole thing is ridiculous. I'm giving you back your deed, Top. You can have the ranch. I want that money. Wait a minute. I'll tell you what I'll do, Rutman. 
Now, the ranch is only worth $10,000. Everybody knows that. So I'll buy it back for ten. What? Yep. I've got the money right here. You want it? No, I want the whole fifteen. I had to borrow ten thousand of it. I've got to return it within a week. I can't help that, Rutman. Ranch ain't worth more than ten thousand dollars, and that's all I'll pay for it. Now, you can take it or leave it. Marshal, are you going to sit there and let him cheat me out of $5,000? Mr. Rutman, you don't have to sell the ranch I've back, got you know. to return that $10,000. there will be trouble if I don't. Bad trouble. Well, there it is. Right there on the table. I'm going to go get me a gun. Uh-uh. No, you don't, Rutman. I'll find him when you're not around, Marshal. Hey, Rutman. Look over there at that bar. You see them five fellers? What about them? They're mighty good friends of mine, and they're staying right here in town as long as I do in case of any trouble. Huh. Ah, looks to me like you're licked, Mr. Rudman. Now, you either pick up the 10000 or the deed, and you get out of here. Now. You'll hear about this, Marshal. Cheating me. I said get going, Rudman. Crooks. Well, he took the money and left the deed, Marshal. I still got my ranch and $5,000 to boot. Top. Who are those friends of yours at the bar there? Oh, I'm giving a party tonight, Marshal. You're invited, too. All the drinks are on me. Yeah, but why them? Well, they're just fellers I know. They live 30, 40 miles apart, all the way up to my ranch. Oh? When I rode back here to see Rutman's money like he wanted me to... I left a horse at each one of them fellas' place. <laughs> so that's how you made the trip in one day. Huh? A day and a night, Marshal. <laughs> you had your own Pony Express. Well, I kind of figured maybe I ought to get here before Rutman did. Uh, you kind of figured right, Tup. Now, Marshal, you know that I'm honest as daylight. I always have been. Of course, I do stretch the blanket a little when it's blanket-stretching time. <laughs> I tell you what, Tuff. Why don't we get that party going, huh? Produced and directed by Norman McDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Our story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Sound patterns by Ray Kemper and Bill James. Featured in the cast were Ralph Moody, Harry Bartell, Joe Duval, and Kathy Marlowe. Harley Bear is Chester, Howard McNear is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. During the current year... Boys Clubs of America is celebrating its golden anniversary. Formed in 1906 from a nucleus of some 50 existing boys clubs, the National Boy Guidance Organization today numbers 435 member clubs from coast to coast, serving more than 450,000 boys. This year, Boys Club Week will again be known as Operation Juvenile Decency, stressing the theme, Prevent Juvenile Delinquency by Building Juvenile Decency.
Join us again next week for another specially transcribed story of the Western Frontier when Matt Dillon, Chester Proudfoot, Doc, and Kitty, together with all the other hard-living citizens of Dodge, will be with you once more. It's America growing west in the 1870s. It's Gunsmoke. Gunsmoke, the episode called How to Sell a Ranch from April 1st, 1956, and from the big broadcast on WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arald Bailey is our co-producer, and Kenny Pirog and Mike Kidd are our audio engineers. You can reach us by email at bigbroadcast at wamu.org. Our website is thebigbroadcast.org, and you'll find us on Facebook, the Big Broadcast, and Instagram, Big Broadcast WAMU. Even with the increased candor on the part of athletes, actors, and other celebrities about their mental health struggles, there's still a need for raising public recognition of mental illness and removing the stigma often attached to it. Today begins Mental Illness Awareness Week, and to mark it, we're going to hear an episode of a series called the Tenth Man, that was syndicated by the National Mental Health Foundation 75 years ago. A lot has changed since then, when few medications were available to treat psychiatric conditions, but are our attitudes different today? You be the judge, as you listen to this episode, The Tie That Binds, hosted by the actor Ralph Bellamy. It comes from September 17, 1947, and the series... The Tenth Man. Who is the Tenth Man? The Tenth Man is the one man in ten in your community who needs or will need some form of psychiatric guidance. Yes, one out of ten of us will suffer at some time in our lives from a nervous or mental illness. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Ralph Bellamy. Our story is called The Tie That Binds, and it concerns the Morans. I'm sure you know them. They live in that white-shingled house in the middle of the block. There are four of them, Julia and Frank, Betsy, their 19-year-old daughter, and Helen, Frank's unmarried sister who lives with them. Perhaps you haven't seen Julia Moran around lately. That's because she's been at the state hospital recovering from a mental illness. But you'll be glad to know that she's well again, so well that she's coming home for a trial visit. Now, many hospitals have a follow-up program for homecoming patients. A social worker is sent to prepare the family for the patient's return. This hasn't been done in Julia's case because the state hasn't allowed enough in its budget for sufficient social workers. However, Miss Carlson, the social worker at the hospital, is having a last-minute talk with Julia. Let me see now. Have I packed everything? Oh, those photographs on the bureau. Mustn't forget those. My family. <laughs> From now on, you'll have the real thing. And won't have to be content with photographs. Yes, after seven months, one week, and four days, I'll be with my family again. 
Oh, I do hope everything goes smoothly on this visit. The doctor said there was no reason why I couldn't stay home for good if all went well. And it will. I'm sure of it. Oh, if I can just get back into that old familiar groove, taking care of my house and family and seeing my friends again, I know I'll be all right. Betsy? Betsy? Yes, Aunt Helen? Take your nose out of that book and come help me get supper. All right, coming. It's almost six o'clock. Your mother and dad ought to be here any minute. Why, here they are now. Betsy, Helen! Oh. Ma, gee, it's good to have you back. Oh, hello, dearest. Oh, mm. <laughs> it's good to be back with you again. Julia, dear. Hello, Helen. Here, Julia, sit down. Oh, Frank, you're carrying this China doll stuff a little too far. I never was delicate. A little unbalanced in the head, maybe. <laughs> Julia, don't joke. About, you know, about that sort of thing. Oh, I suppose you're right, Helen. It really wasn't much of a joke, you know, the hospital and all. I was lucky to have recovered so quickly. When I think of those poor people who are still there... But you're home now, old girl. Here to stay. Oh, Frank, I think I'm going to cry. No, I'm not. I'm too happy and too hungry. Helen, what's burning in the kitchen? Oh, dear. The roast. You can't go near the kitchen, Ma. Aunt Helen and I are taking care of dinner. Betsy, <laughs> come and help. Coming. Well, all right, just for tonight. Oh, Frank, I've been looking forward to this moment for so long. There's something I want to talk to you about, Julia. Now, don't you think you ought to take it easy for a while? Oh, I plan to, dear. But I can do housework. Well, I thought, Julia, if we got somebody in to cook... No, Frank, we couldn't afford it. It's out of the question, dear. Well, we'll talk about it later. Are you doing anything special? No, dear. I'm a lady of leisure now. Just sit here by the window and watch people pass by on the street. Poor Mrs. Williams slaves away in the kitchen. Oh, you know, Dad. He likes to be protective and all that. Well, it's beginning to get on my nerves. As a matter of fact, Ma, I was going to ask you for some help. Oh, what is it, dear? Something need mending? Oh, nothing so prosaic. I was going to ask your help with a report I have to prepare for psychology class. Why, how can I help? Well, I'd like to do something really spectacular, mm -hmm. like a report on, on how it feels to get shock treatments or something like that. Oh, I see. Now, you can give me all that stuff firsthand. What was it like? Uh, Betsy, isn't there something else you can report on? Well, I, I just thought I'd take advantage of my own personal connection with mental illness. Betsy, darling, you have no personal connection with mental illness, and I hope you never do. That was my experience, something that was exclusively my own. Since you've never been ill, you, you couldn't possibly understand what it's like. So your report would fall rather flat, I'm afraid. All right, I'll, I'll try and think of something else. Oh, hello, Helen. Come hello. and sit down. You look all tired out. Oh, Aunt Helen, I'm going upstairs, Ma. All right, dear. Well, Julia, I ran into Jim Robinson, you know, next door. Mm -hmm. They brought his wife back from the hospital with a new baby today. Oh. The missus is pretty weak, he says. 
I guess he was looking for someone to help get supper for himself and the other children. Oh, Helen, let me go. I'd love to help them out. That's what neighbors are for. Why, Julia, you know Frank wouldn't like it. Well, can't I even visit with them a bit? I've been home two weeks now and haven't even seen any of the neighbors. Didn't you tell them I was coming home? Well, as a matter of fact, I haven't been doing much visiting lately, Julia. Well, why not, Helen? Well, you know, all this trouble and everything... Helen, you seem to think I ought to be ashamed or something because I was sick. No, I don't mean that. But people are bound to feel a little uneasy about you now that you've been a mental patient. I mean ordinary people like the Robinsons next door. It even makes me feel a little strange if I allow myself to think about it. Helen, it wasn't very nice of you to say that. Well, you insisted on talking about it. Now you know how I feel. Julia, where are you going? I'm going... Upstairs. Julia, don't go. I'm sorry. It was mean and spiteful of me to say that. I didn't mean it. Really, Julia. Julia, please come back. Miss Carlson, the social worker from the hospital. Oh, yes. I'm glad to meet you, Miss Carlson. This is my Aunt Helen, Miss Moran, and this is my father. How do you do? I called you, Miss Carlson, because I'm afraid I've upset Julia dreadfully. I was trying to tell her how people feel about her illness, and she reacted very badly. She went upstairs to her room. Mm -hmm. Gee, maybe it was something I said. Maybe all this is my fault. Your fault? Yes, I was asking Mother to tell me some of her hospital experiences from my psych class report, and, well, she seemed strange, as as if she didn't want to talk about it. Well, after all, that's perfectly natural, isn't it? But won't she ever be able to talk about her illness? Of course she will. But at first, it would be better to let it come up naturally in the conversation. After all, Betsy, your questions were probably not to help her feel at ease but merely to satisfy your own curiosity. Yes, I see what you mean. I I guess it was selfish of me. Now, let me see. Mrs. Moran's been home for several weeks. I suppose she's been renewing her acquaintances in the neighborhood. Well, no. She's been sticking pretty closely to the house. That's odd for a friendly person like Mrs. Moran. Hasn't she been feeling well? Oh, she feels fine, but... Well, after all, she's just back from the hospital. It's too soon for her to be getting around. Oh, but mental illness isn't like physical illness in that respect. Convalescents don't need rest. They need activity. They do? Oh, yes, social contacts and a fuller life, not a more restricted one. But, Miss Carlson, don't you think Julia might even go away for a while? You know, take a little trip until things blow over. Blow over? Until what blows over? Well, I mean, if Julia tries to see her old friends, it might be, you know, uncomfortable for everybody concerned. Miss Moran, your neighbors won't feel uncomfortable with Mrs. Moran unless she herself meets them with feelings of shame and uneasiness. When she left the hospital, she was perfectly natural. It's Helen who's been ashamed and uneasy about this thing, not Julia. Everybody feels that way about insanity. It's a kind of inborn fear. I wanted Julia to stay home to protect her against that feeling and others. I don't think that fear is born in this. I think it's learned from books and the movies we see, and from the fearful attitudes of others. 
If we educate ourselves to see mental disorder as an illness, like tuberculosis, and not as a terror, that sensible attitude in ourselves will influence others to be sensible. I only hope you haven't undermined Julia's self-confidence, Helen. I've certainly not helped her by treating her like an invalid. Miss Carson, it's a shame you couldn't have told us these things before Mother came home. Now it may be too late. <laughs> no, I don't think so. It's just that Mrs. Moran has been protected a little too much. If we loosen those ties of love just a bit and let Mrs. Moran test out her new liberty, I'm sure her self-confidence will be as strong as ever. Hello? Oh, hello, Jim. Say, I haven't had a chance to congratulate you on that new arrival. Well, that's fine. How's Doris? It's still pretty weak, huh? What? Oh, I think so. Anyway, I'll ask her. Oh, Helen. Yes, Frank? They're in pretty much of a dither next door at the Robinsons. Will you go over to fix supper for them? Why, yes. Okay, Jim. She'd be glad to. Oh, by the way, Julia's home. Yes, it is. Well, thanks, yes. All right, I'll tell her. Goodbye, Jim. I'm sorry, Miss Carlson. Now, where were we? Well, I think we've covered everything now, and I ought to be on my way. But I'll be back next week to see Mrs. Moran. Goodbye. Goodbye, Miss Carlson. And thank you. Goodbye. Well, I'm glad she came, Frank. I guess I have behaved pretty badly. I'm sorry. That's all right, Helen. We've all got to start afresh with Julia, I think. Well, i better go next door. Uh, just a moment, Helen. When I told Jim that Julia was home, he asked if she could come over. He said Doris would be glad to see Julia again. Oh, I'll go and tell Mother. She'll be glad to hear that. No, Betsy, let me go. I want to give her a little pleasure for a change. And I have an apology to make. <laughs> For most of the ills that afflict mankind, there are wonderful drugs to combat the disease and bring healing. But there is no wonder drug to keep us and those about us mentally healthy. By helping those returning from mental hospitals to reestablish themselves, we can help others to preserve their mental health. In the play you've just heard, the Moran family's peace of mind could have been saved by an earlier visit from the social worker. Do your hospitals supply adequate social work coverage? What about your community? You have just heard Ralph Bellamy as narrator in The Tie That Binds, produced by the National Mental Health Foundation and presented in association with other organizations dedicated to the preservation of mental health. The Tie That Binds, an episode of The Tenth Man from the last week of summer in 1947. We've got links on our social media to some insights into what mental health care was like back then. And if you're experiencing mental health issues, or if you're a caregiver, a friend, or a relative of someone who is, please visit the National Alliance on Mental Health website, nami.org. 
This is the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Last week, we offered the first part of a two-part dragnet case as the story reached a kind of cadence point, but not a resolution. They're going to try for that tonight in the conclusion of The Big Gent. It aired on July 27, 1950, NBC and Dragnet. The story you are about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned to robbery detail. Three persons are shot down in a $12,000 holdup. One of the bandits is apprehended, convicted, and sent to prison for life. The other one is still at large. Your job, get him. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Tuesday, June 6th. It was cloudy in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out of robbery detail. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Captain Ed Walker. My name's Friday. I was on the way back from communications, and it was 11.35 a.m. when I got to room 27A, robbery division. Joe, how are you? Oh, hi, Dave. Message in the book for you. Came in a couple of minutes ago. Oh, thank you. Woman's voice. Wanted you to call as soon as you got in. Yeah, thank you, Dave. I get it now. George Street Juvenile Bureau, Miss Bentley. Uh, Policewoman River there, please. Just a minute. River? Hold on, please. All right. Miss River? Dorothy? Joe Friday. Oh, yes, Joe. You get the message? Yeah. You worrying about your purse? I can't find it anywhere. Did I leave it in your car last night? Found it this morning. I can leave it at the desk here if you like. You can pick it up sometime today. Oh, that'll be swell, Joe. Thanks a lot. Sure, Dorothy. I had a wonderful time last night, Joe. I certainly enjoyed it. Yeah. Pretty good movie, huh? Hey, uh, Dorothy? Yeah. Uh, Mother and I were talking this morning at breakfast. Mm-hmm. Uh, like to come over to the house sometime for dinner? Ma, I'd like to meet you. Oh, well, sure. That'd be fine. I'd like to meet your mother. How about a week from this coming Monday? That's my day off. Is that okay? All right. A week from this Monday. The weather's good. Well, maybe we can have a barbecue out in the back. Oh, it sounds wonderful. Okay. See you later, then. All right, Joe. Bye. Bye. Joe? Hi. How'd it work out, Ben? It didn't. Another false alarm. Sure is a scorcher out today. Four months work and not one solid lead. Where are we going? I haven't got the answer. I've run down so many bum tips, I don't think I'd know the real thing would hit me in the face. Yeah. Romero, Joe? Yes, Gibber? Oh, McGuire and Mort Gear from San Diego just got here. You want to come in? Yeah, right away, Ed. Well, there we are. Boy. All right. Oh, ben, what do you say? You? Sit down. Hope you two have more than we have. It's all in that report on the skipper's desk. Four months' leg work. Cold. Nothing at all? Oh, lots of phony tips, bum leads. We got three stakeouts going. His mugshot's plastered all over town. No go, huh? 
I don't know. I think he's got the perfect face for a killer. You can hang his description on a million guys. Got nothing on him at all. Ben here just ran down the last lead we own. Yeah, false alarm. Nothing on the APB, huh? Got dust on it. Cold enough to bury. How long's it been since it happened? Back in January, wasn't it? Yeah, 27. Stanley Finance Company, San Diego. It's all right there in the report, Ed. Yeah, I see. Hold-up shooting, got 12,000. Suspects, Frank Cheney, Turk Weber, Cheney did the shooting. That's what stops me. What's that? Took us a couple of weeks to grab Turk Weber and put him away. Here it's more than four months and Cheney's still on the loose. Doesn't that, he can't be that smart. Well, he's free. I can't think of a better testimonial. What about the other angles, Friday, besides those three stakeouts? We covered the town for Cheney. He had four months of it. Hotels, rooming houses, motor courts, bars, restaurants, the works. Must have a couple of thousand copies of his mugshot spread around. No response? Oh, get four or five calls a day on him. Been going on for weeks now. We check him out. Never the right man. What about his wife? She's still supposed to be with Cheney, isn't she? Funny thing, we haven't had one report on her. Last time the two of them were supposed to have been seen together was five weeks ago. That was up in Stockton. Cheney's mother-in-law lives in Marysville, huh? They still have a stakeout on her house? Yeah, no leads there either. How about it, Mort? Nothing to offer? About the same as up here. There is something we'd like to check on, though. Yeah? One of McGuire's informants was paroled two weeks ago. He served time with Cheney at Folsom. You have anything to say? Yeah. His idea, Frank Cheney, was the most hated man at Folsom. Most of the cons had given their right arm to cool him off. Mm-hmm. What made him so popular? Pretty much of a heel. Ran to the warden's office three times a week regular and informed on the other cons every chance he got. You figure some of them might want to even the score. Mm-hmm. If they know anything, I'm pretty sure they'll talk. Worth a try, isn't it? Their leads can't be any colder than what we got anyway. You gonna need any help, Mark? No, McGuire and I can handle the questioning. We'll go up to Folsom tomorrow. Okay. I don't think there's any argument. This thing needs a quick answer. Joe, you and Ben will have to push a lot harder and a lot faster. Cheney's robbed and killed before. Give him the chance he'll do it again. We've run down all the possible angles, Ed. We've checked every lead we could dig up. There's one you missed. Yeah. The right one. Find it. From the day Frank Cheney had been identified as the killer in the San Diego holdup murder four months before, all of us realized the danger of another killing as long as he was loose. After 18 years in prison, Cheney had a gun and he had his freedom again. We knew he wouldn't give him up easily. Thursday, June 8th, Lieutenant Mort Gear and Sergeant Tony McGuire returned from Folsom Prison. After talking with most of the convicts who knew Cheney well during his prison days, they had a list of more than 40 leads to run down. Ben and I took half of them. We started checking. It went kind of slow, and the results were thin. After running down the first dozen leads, we'd found out nothing about the suspect that we didn't already know. Monday, June 12th, we checked with a John Strezak, supposedly one of Cheney's close friends up at Folsom. He'd been paroled before Cheney, and he was now working at a large commercial engraving firm down in East Main. Yeah, I know Cheney pretty well, Sergeant. Pretty well. Uh... Just a minute, will you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that does it. Yeah, I know why you're here, Sergeant. I can't help you. You were pretty close to Cheney up at Folsom, weren't you, Strezak? Best friend? Everybody was his best friend. Everybody could do him some good. You haven't seen or heard from him since he got out, huh? Nope, I don't want to. I learned fast. How do you mean? He's a bum, Sergeant. Some people are born that way. Tried to talk me into a break once. I didn't buy I knew he didn't write to the warden with it. Some people are born that way, bombs. You think somebody might be hiding him out? From his pals. How about them? If he's got any pals, I don't know him. I can tell you this, they didn't come out of Folsom. Well, can you think of anything at all that might give us some kind of a lead on Cheney? I wish I could, believe me. 
I better get back on the job. Shop foreman. He's no better than Cheney. Bum. All right, Strezak. Thanks a lot. I'd like to know if you hear anything, I'm going to leave you one of our cards here. Uh, yeah, okay, Sergeant. Hey, Strezak, what'd you go up for, anyhow? Just what I'm doing. Huh? Engraving. We kept at it, checking out the leads one by one, the same slow, dull routine that we'd been on for four months. It ate up valuable time, but it was necessary. You never know what a lead's worth until you check it out. During the past months, from the least promising sources, we'd uncovered a half a dozen bits of information about the suspect, none of them conclusive, but they helped point the way. We found out Cheney's favorite sport was sailing. Yacht clubs up and down the coast were contacted and asked to watch for him. We learned where Cheney got his eyeglasses, contact lenses. We went to the optician, got the prescription for them, and had copies of it distributed to all optical firms in the area. They got a request for lenses which matched those in Cheney's eyeglasses or contact lenses they were to notify us. From a former college friend, we found out that the suspect was once treated for tuberculosis, and because of this, he drank only goat's milk. All the retailers in the area who sold goat's milk were contacted and alerted. We set up a system to check regularly all the mail received by relatives of both Cheney and his wife. Thursday, June 15th. Hi. San Diego called while you were out. What year? They come up with anything? Yeah. One lead told him Cheney learned the printing trade while he was up at Folsom. Knew the business well enough to work at it. San Diego checking that out? They alerted the printer's union. We'll do the same up here. Mm -hmm. Picture and story on Cheney will be in the union newspaper next week. Yeah. Now, we dug up another bit on Cheney. We got it this morning. What's that? Well, instead of ordinary eyeglasses, Cheney's been known to wear contact lenses. You know, glass fits right over your eye. Uh-huh. Good chance he might be wearing them now. Kind of help change his appearance. We got the prescription for the lenses for Cheney's eye doctor. Got the information to all the optical firms in town. Good. Friday, man out here to see you. Oh, okay, thank you, Dave. All right, that's all. Better contact San Diego. Keep him posted. All right, Skipper. This gentleman here, Joe. This is Sergeant Friday. Yes, sir. How are you, Sergeant? You remember me, Vince Bertoli? Uh, you were in my place last month, the White House Grill. Place down on Alameda? Yeah, that's right. Block from Union Station. Both of you oh, came in. yeah. You had coffee and an omelet? You liked sure, the omelet? Sure, sure, yeah. What can we do for you, Bertoli? Well, remember you were talking to me? You said you were looking for somebody. You left some pictures in this card of yours here. Yeah, that's right. Well, I lost the pictures. I don't know where I lost them, but I kept your card. That's why I came to see you. Why? Well, as I say, I lost the pictures, but I still have an idea what they look like. Have you seen either one of those people, the man or the woman? Well, that's why I came to check with you. A week ago, one of my steady waitresses quit, and I hired this brunette with a hard luck story. Mm-hmm. Uh, care for a stick of gum? Licorice flavor? No, no. Nothing. Well, after a couple of days, I remembered that picture you gave me, and I thought she looked a little like it. That's why I kept an eye on her. Did you notice anything out of the ordinary? Mm, you bet. She never dates anybody. Not even me, and I'm the boss. <laughs> Not ugly, either. Yeah. She always claims she's got to get home. Never gives a reason. Says she lives alone. Where does she live? A couple of blocks from my place on North Jersey, I think. I checked the place where she does her shopping. They tell me she buys enough groceries for three people. Mm -hmm. She still insists that she's living by herself, though. Yeah, that's why I thought I'd better check with you. I lost the pictures, but I hung on to your card. Uh, will you take a look at this photograph, Matoli? Yeah. Sure, same one you gave me. Looks just like her, Mary Sloan. Who? Mary Sloan. That's her name, isn't it? You want to turn that picture over? Mrs. Frank Cheney. Thursday, 4 p.m. Ben and I drove down to the White House Grill and had a cup of coffee. We got a good look at the waitress whom the owner, Vince Bertoli, suspected of being Mrs. Cheney. 
We left and waited outside in the car until 5 o'clock when the suspect came out. We followed her to a grocery store and from there to a run-down apartment building on Greystone Alley just off Temple. We waited a few minutes and then we followed her in. The tab on one of the mailboxes read, Mary Sloan, apartment 16. We went up. Which one, Joe? Number 16. It's down this way. Come on. Mm-hmm. Police officers, open up. What do you want? Open the door. Just a minute. Anybody else in here? My brother. He's sick, sleeping in the next room. He can't be disturbed. Come on, Ben. You can't go in there. Honey, the out! Get out! Joe, the window. All right, get back inside here. Come on, you. Let me go, let go of me. His arms, Ben, grab him. For nothing. Hmm? Not Cheney. We drove the man and the woman who identified herself as Mary Sloan back to the office where they are identified as fugitives from Miami, Florida. The man was wanted on charges of first degree burglary. The woman was the accomplice. We turned the case over to Bunko Fugitive Detail. A little after 11 o'clock Friday morning, Ben got a tip that Cheney had been seen the night before at a small bar down near Fullerton. That's a Los Angeles suburb. He was supposed to be living in the area. We spent Friday, Saturday, and Sunday tracking it down. It went nowhere. On Monday, for the first time in three and a half weeks, we had some time off. Half a day. I picked up policewoman Dorothy River and drove her out to the house for lunch. We had a barbecue out in the backyard. Certainly a wonderful place you have here, Mrs. Friday. Beautiful garden. Oh, thank you. It's a lot of work keeping it up. Roses didn't do well at all this year. Aphis, you know. Much more spare ribs, Dorothy. The fire's just right now. Oh, no, thanks, Joe. I've had plenty. Care for another cup of coffee, Dorothy? All right, thank you. (laughs) I'm glad you could come today, Dorothy. Joseph's been talking so much about you. Oh? You surprised me a little when I met you. How's that? How about some more ribs, Ma? Joseph. I don't think you look at all like a policewoman. Most of them are rough looking, I think. Oh, no, I don't think so. They look like most women. Nothing much out of the ordinary about them. Oh? Well, <laughs> times have certainly changed. We didn't have police women when I was a girl. Probably could have used them. Well, I don't know. I don't think we had so much crime then. Times were much different. You seem so young for such work, Dorothy. Please, woman. I'm 25, Mrs. Friday. Been with the department almost two years. Oh, yes, you're a young girl. Joseph's 31, you know. Yes, I know. Hey, Ma, how about letting me gather you the dishes up? Oh, no, no, that's all right, Joseph. You just sit there, have your coffee. I'm used to this. Have to get used to housework when you're married. I'll bring outside. A wonderful dinner, Joe. Your mother's very sweet. Yeah, real subtle, isn't she? Oh, <laughs> motherly instinct. Somebody has to look after you. Oh, that's the phone, Dorothy. I better grab it. I'll be right back. Okay. 
Never mind, Ma. Let me get it. Friday, Tongue. This is Walker, Joe. Check back in right away. What do you got? Spring and West Temple, the Second National Bank. Yeah? Frank Cheney just held it up. Back to the office, picked up Ben and Captain Walker, and the three of us drove to the scene of the robbery at the corner of Spring and West Temple, the Second National Bank. Ricketts and Thaxter from robbery detail were already there questioning witnesses. We talked to the bank's vice president in charge at the time of the holdup, a uh, Mr. Bronson. He had a welt on the right side of his head and was pretty badly shaken. He had his hand in one of his coat pockets, and he walked straight over to me. It's the first thing he said. This is a holdup. You're a positive of the identification, Mr. Bronson? I'm certain... This picture here, that's the man, all right. The others will tell you the same. Who's that, Mr. Bronson? The tellers, they all got a good look at him, no mistake. Well, what happened after Cheney approached you? He was very calm, very quiet. Uh-huh. He said, do exactly what I tell you. Call for help, and I'll kill you. He was calm all the way through it, just like it was an ordinary business with him. Did he have you get the money for him? No, he ordered me from back to the front counter there, and... We went from cage to cage. Each time he had me say the same thing to the teller. This is a holdup. Give me all the currency you have. Don't call for help. Now, how many tellers did he have you collect from? Five. Mm-hmm. This line along here, windows one to five. Oh, my knees were shaking so hard I could barely walk. I kept wondering if one of the tellers might try to sound the alarm. Yes, sir. What happened after he got the money? He had me walk in front of him, down there to the side exit. Mm-hmm. That's when he hit me, I guess. Uh, side of my head, you can see here where they bandied it. Uh-huh. Yes, sir. How much money did he get, do you know? Oh, not quite sure. More than 4000 I can't help but think how lucky I am. That man's a killer, I'm certain of it. Are you sure that we can't fix you up with a ride home? No, no, I'll be all right, thank you. My wife's on the way down now. Uh, can I see you fellas a minute? Yeah, thanks, sir. Uh, excuse us, will you, Bronson? Yes, certainly. Rounded up all the dope on the getaway car, Chaney used. Yeah? At two this afternoon, he went to a used car lot up in Figueroa, about eight blocks from here, asked to be shown a late model Ford. Yeah, go ahead. The salesman took him for a demonstration ride. When he pulled up for an arterial, Chaney jabbed a gun at him and told him to get out. The salesman got out, Chaney drove off. And 15 minutes later, he walked in here and pulled the robbery. That's it. The bank tellers tabbed the same Ford as the getaway car. Broadcasted all points on the car, nothing yet. What time you got, Romero? Mm, ten minutes to four. What time did the alert go out, Thaxter? 2.45. Everything covered? Yeah, Union Station, both airports, the bus depots, they're all alerted. Roadblocks set up on the highways. Since 2.45? Just about. Been changing somewhere in the city. Find him. Six p.m., the search went on. We called into the office and had them notify San Diego of the latest developments in the case. At 7 p.m., the weather started to cloud up. Still no sign of Cheney or the getaway car. At 8 o'clock, it started to rain. A few minutes past 10, a two-door Ford sedan was found abandoned on San Pedro Street near South Park. The license number matched that of Cheney's getaway car. The sedan was impounded and towed to a garage for fingerprinting. Ben called the office, and an emergency detail from Metropolitan Division was sent out to help in a house-to-house canvas of the neighborhood where the car had been found. By 4.30 the next morning, we got nowhere. So we decided to give it up until later in the day. At 6.30 a.m., we had poached eggs and coffee at an all-night drive-in. 7 a.m., it was still raining. We checked back in at the office. 
I don't know. Seems like every time we have to work late, it's going to rain. You got any of those little white tablets in your locker? That breakfast gave me indigestion. Yeah, I think I got a few left. That reminds me, how'd the dinner come off yesterday? Two of them get along all right? Oh, all right. You know how it is. Ma had her usual few things to say. Oh? Dorothy handled it pretty good. Good sense of humor. Yeah, nice looking girl. Sensible. Hiya. What'd you say, Earl? You doing any good? No, not much. Phone message in the book for you. You're supposed to call as soon as you get in. Hmm. Hempstead 4219. No name? No, you're supposed to call the number, that's all. Yeah, okay, well. Well, how's the new house, Earl? Pretty good. Takes a lot of money. Got the forms in for the patio. I'm going to pour the cement this weekend. Mm-hmm. Got the place fenced off yet? Not yet, no. Most pickets cost money. Yeah. Fellas are telling me that you're doing all the work yourself, huh? Me and the brother-in-law, yeah. All right. Cost a lot of money, a new house. Sounds good, Joe. Who was it? Frank Cheney's grandfather. Yeah? Says to come over right away. a.m. It was still raining. Ben and I drove out to the older section of the Wilshire district to the Cheney Mansion. It represented one part of the suspect's life that we could never figure. As a child and later as a young man, Frank Cheney had had every advantage and comfort that a millionaire father could buy for him. Yet for some reason, he'd settled on a career of crime. 7.45 a.m. Ben and I were shown into the main hallway of the Cheney home by the butler. He recognized us from previous visits. He took our hats and coats and then led us up the staircase to the master bedroom at the far end of the second floor. We found Cheney's 82-year-old grandfather propped up in a four-poster bed. His face was gray and sunken. There was a nurse in a white starched uniform standing by. You can go, nurse. Go on. I'll be outside if you need me, Mr. Cheney. Yes, yes. You, um, have some information for us, Mr. Cheney? Of course. Hi, Carl. Sit down. Sit down. Thank you, sir. That hold-up yesterday, the bank robbery, I know all about it. Has Frank contacted you? That's like the police get right to the point. Has he contacted you, sir? Yes. Uh, Hand me that glass of water, please. Oh, yeah. There. There you are. Thank you. No, no, leave it on the table there. Oh, yes. When Frank got out of prison last year, he came to see me. I offered him one more chance. I told him if he decided to earn his way, he'd have all the help I could give him. He said he would. Yes, sir. I was a fool like everyone else. I believed him. Any idea where Frank is now? I gave him everything it was possible to give him. He wrecked the family, his father's life, my life. Everything he touched, he ruined. You know where he is now, sir? He telephoned me day before yesterday. He was going away, Central America. Why didn't you notify us? He was going away. I thought it'd be better. We've had enough notoriety, newspaper stories. How was he going to get to South America, sir? Swedish ship. He's going to work his way. He called from San Pedro. He's staying in some hotel there. You don't know the name? Find him. Take him away. Bury him someplace. Okay, Joe. Yeah. Thank you very much, Mr. Cheney. Sergeant. Yes, sir? Frank will have a gun. He'll try to use it. Yes, sir. Kill him. 
9 a.m., Ben and I went back to the office and put in a call to the Swedish vice consulate on South Spring Street. They told us that three days before, a man answering Cheney's description had signed on the Swedish motor ship Southern Cross as a member of the engine room crew. We picked up Sergeants Thaxter and Davis and drove down to San Pedro. The Southern Cross was still taking on cargo when we got there. We showed Cheney's mugshot to the first mate. You're the American. Cameron, that's him. He signed on this trip. Is he aboard the ship now? Oh, he's right up there on deck. He was there. I guess he went below. What if you take us to him, please? All right. Lindgren? Yeah? Oh, we come on the meeting soon. All right, this way. The gangway, mind you. Better watch it, then. Yeah. Look forward. Through here. Mm-hmm. Maybe you better stay behind here, sir. We'll take him. What's that? Might be a little trouble here. Do you want to stay behind us? All right. He must stay in the engine room. Stay ahead, then turn to your left. Down the companion bay. Right, thank you. Come on, watch your step here. Yeah. Spotted it. All right, Cheney, hold it. He's making a break. Come on. He's going topside. Hustle. Come on up the ladder. Look out, Joe. Give it up, Cheney. He's going for the gangway. Down, Ben. Yeah. All right, stop him. Come on. Through the shoulder. Yeah. Bumped his head when he fell. Gotta get the cuffs on him. Yeah. Where'd everybody disappear to? I guess you didn't notice when we came aboard. Huh? Look topside. See? Red flag. Oh, yeah. Taking on fuel, huh? There's some of the cargo right over there. Oh. High explosives. story you have just heard was true. Only the names were changed to protect the innocent. On November 2nd, trial was held in Superior Court, City and County of San Diego, State of California. In a moment, the results of that trial. Frank Bertram Cheney was tried and convicted of murder in the first degree. He is now awaiting execution in the lethal gas chamber at the State Penitentiary, San Quentin, California. The conclusion of the story called The Big Gent from the summer of 1950 and the series Dragnet. You heard it here on The Big Broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arold Bailey is our co-producer. Kenny Pirog and Mike Kidd are the audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington in HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. According to the latest Art Basel and UBS Global Art Market Report, the art market bounced back last year with sales of fine art and antiques estimated at $65.1 billion. With paintings by artists from Leonardo da Vinci to Jackson Pollock going for hundreds of millions of dollars these days, that's not too surprising. The price of the painting in the Halls of Ivy episode we're about to hear is laughable compared to numbers like that, but then there's much that's intentionally laughable in this venerable comedy series. 
Be sure to listen through to the end of this show for the name of its writer. And we'll hear a reference to the economist and investor Roger Babson. From NBC, it's Ronald and Benita Coleman in the January 24, 1951 episode of The Halls of Ivy. Now, The Halls of Ivy. Welcome again to Ivy. Ivy College, that is, in the town of Ivy, USA. It's morning in the household of the William Todd Hunter Halls, and the doctor is sitting at his desk. His wife, Victoria, enters to uh, overhear the mutterings that invariably seem to accompany the president's perusal of the morning mail. Ridiculous. Preposterous. Sounds as if the mail is up to its usual standard, Toddy. Or is it worse? Oh, no, no worse. A little duller, perhaps. Mostly advertisements. Now, just think of the appalling waste, the expenditure of paper and energy, the hours of secretarial work, the wear and tear on the throats of house dogs barking at thousands of mailmen. Yes, but think of the profits of the paper and the dog food people. And the taxes they pay on the profits they make from the sales of the articles they sell to the people who don't need them, and the big dividends they send to the stockholders who are thus able to send their sons and daughters to Ivy, who will grow up to make better shoes and finer paper and finally bring bigger taxes. All right, Vicky, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right. You can, you can breathe now. Okay, Chief. <laughs> I must say I admire the way in which you tortured the subject of a dull morning's mail into a promotional plan for increasing our student enrollment. Well, thank you. It, it was nothing, really. I mean... I mean, anyone with my knowledge of technological processes could have done it. You see, when examined closely, inflation and its effect on our capitalistic structure... Uh, Vicky, is, Vicky, please. Well, you, you don't care to hear about the economic fabric of an industrial society? No, no, dear, no. Well, it's a good thing. I couldn't have gone on much longer. <laughs> uh, may I ask where you acquired this Roger Babson babble? Well, yes, the, the Wall Street Journal. You left it lying about, and you know me, old Snoopy. Yeah, I'm a quick study, too. I can leaf through an old copy of the medical journal and know exactly how to treat a case of the Waldorf Syndrome. I feel that this discourse is getting away from me, but what is the Waldorf Syndrome? Well, it's a neurotic compulsion to peek into other people's newspapers. <laughs> and I got it bad. <laughs> Go on with the mail, darling. What's the one you got there? Oh, some long-winded thing. Well, read it, read it. While you may not be a connoisseur, such nonsense. Within the purely academic field, etc., 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 master spirit of his age, wasting my time. <laughs> Color and style unmatched, flawless technique. This is awful. For the benefit of Ivy, without any encumbrance. But this is wonderful. <laughs> and, and conceivably worth a hundred thousand dollars. A hundred grand? A hundred would be grand, Vicky, but this is a hundred thousand. <laughs> A grand is a thousand. Oh, I thought you said a hundred was grand. Well, well, never never mind, Toddy. Forget about my bad early training and tell me what it's all about. I mean, is it awful or is it wonderful? Well, it's certainly better than I thought. It's from a lawyer, Homer Benson, of the firm of Benson, 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 Willoughby and Benson. Oh, <laughs> oh Willoughby, I wonder if he spent Christmas alone. <laughs> uh, Benson is executive of the estate of the late Mrs. Charlotte Peters. Her husband was an Ivy graduate. And she was a French woman of some wealth. During the last war, he died while fighting with the French resistance, and she fled to this country. 
She's occupied her last few years in an effort to recover some of her family art treasures. And where does Ivy and the hundred grand, uh, I mean thousand, come in? Well, in her will, she leaves what Mr. Benson describes in his letter as a superb and fully authenticated Goya painting to Ivy College. Mr. Benson himself is on his way here now to complete the necessary formalities. Oh, Tolly, how exciting. We couldn't have it in here, could we? Uh, to begin with, Vicky, uh, the painting is seven feet by five, oh. and we cannot raise the roof. Uh, at least, not any more than we did on Christmas Eve. <laughs> uh, secondly, Mr. Wellman and the Board of Governors would hardly approve. No, Mr. W. and the B.O.G. will have to decide whether it hangs in, in Emerson Hall or the new Ivy Art Center. Or whether it's put on the market. To be sold? Yes, the proceeds to go towards, well, towards building the new Ivy Art Center. Mm. <laughs> How about putting the Goya up and then building the new art center around it and then start classes? Or would that be putting the art before the course? <laughs> well, then we wouldn't have the money to start building the... Uh, Vicky, I'm a very busy man. Oh, yes, I am. Right, you are, darling. Well, when is Mr. Benson coming? Well, he should be here now. Now, I just heard a car pull up. Look out of the window, darling, will you? Is it an attorney with the mud of the airport still on his shoes and a bulging briefcase which probably holds an extra shirt and a seal? A seal? In that little briefcase? Uh, a notary public seal, dear. Oh, oh. <laughs> well, can you see him, our visitor, I mean? But yes, I, I, I think it's Mr. Willoughby. If it isn't Mr. Benson, Mr. Benson or Mr. Benson. On the other hand, of course, it could be Mr. Benson. Yeah, I'll get it. Yeah, remarkable woman, my wife. Remarkable. How can a hundred be grand and then be a thousand? Very odd. William, here's Mr. Benson. This is ah. my husband, Dr. Hall. Good morning, Dr. Hall. Mr. Benson, I'm glad to see you. I was very interested in your letter. And on behalf of Ivy... Uh, just a moment, I'm... Doctor. Uh, since my letter was mailed, a disturbing complication has arisen. Mr. Basil Willingdon, the eminent art critic, uh, declares the painting to be a fraud and not an original Goya at all. Well, there goes the nucleus of our art center before we even got it. Is Mr. Willingdon's decision final? Uh, not at all, Mrs. Hall. In fact, Mr. Willingdon has not seen the painting. Oh. His opinion is based on a communication he has just received from the Bernheimer Gallery in Bordeaux. Uh, they claim it is a work of no importance. Well, that seems to settle it. I'm not enough of a critic myself to argue with an established art gallery. Uh, however, on the manifest, it was declared by Mrs. Peters to be an old master, therefore free of duty. And Mrs. Peters was herself a connoisseur and an authority in the world of art. Uh, furthermore, her declaration has the endorsement of the best art critic in Paris. Well, things are looking up again. Uh, where is this painting at the moment, Mr. Benson? Uh, still in its crate at the New York docks, awaiting claim and clearance. Uh, Mrs. Peters died a few days after its arrival. Well, why can't they open it up and let the experts appraise it? And not without the authority of the owner. Mm. And according to the will, it is now, if accepted by you, the property of Ivy College. Well, I don't see how we can accept it until the mystery is cleared up. Emerson would turn in his grave if we hung a fraud in Emerson Hall. Hardy, <laughs> wouldn't it be just perfect for the Clarence Wellman Hall? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> That's just where Mr. Wellman wants it. What? Uh, I'm acquainted with Mr. Wellman, Dr. Hall, and knowing he was the chairman of your board, I telephoned him yesterday and informed him of my coming here this morning. Oh, I assume he is unaware of this dispute among the critics as to the authenticity of the painting. He is. That complication was only brought to my attention after I had spoken to him. Mm, our friend Clarence is going to have a rude awakening. Well, unless Mrs. Peters is right, and Willingdon and company are wrong... Uh, 
There is one more factor to be considered, Dr. Hall. Well, if this gets any more involved, I'll paint a Goya myself. Uh, Mrs. Peters in her will stipulates that the painting must either hang in Ivy College, be disposed of for Ivy's benefit, or Ivy may accept the sum of $5,000 as an alternative. The picture then to be sold for other charities. What is Ivy to lose? In the latter alternative, a great deal, should the painting turn out to be genuine. Yes, 5000 against a possible $100,000. Well, it seems we must just wait on Mr. Wellman and the board. Uh, I am to call on Mr. Wellman on my way to the airport with the papers for his signature. Oh, uh, one last formality. Uh, with the will, there was a letter addressed to you as president of Ivy College. As you see on the envelope, Mrs. Peters stipulated that it must be opened only after the acceptance of the request. Yes, I see. Thank you. Goodbye, Mrs. Hall. Goodbye. Oh, goodbye. Goodbye, Mr. Vicky? Yeah, yeah, I'm toddy. Oh, I'm sorry if I'm late. Any messages? Yes. The president of the Royal Academy phoned. Oh, what did he have to... Who? What on earth can he be? Well, then the vice president, Mr. Wellman. You know, Wellman, the art lover. The man who stole the Mona Lisa. Leonardo da Vinci's unauthenticated grandson. He, uh, he wants you to call him. Well, after your description of him, anything I can call him will be anticlimactic. <laughs> oh, let him wait a minute. Let me put my feet up and enjoy these peaceful surroundings. May I make a suggestion? Uh, by all means, darling, what do you suggest? Before you put your feet up, you'd better sit down. You might have a nasty fall otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> a very sound idea, and I'll do it. Yeah, well, all right. Now, what about uh, Wellman? Yes, and what about the Goya? Is it true or false? Now that Wellman knows it's in question, will he take the picture and the gamble, or... Oh, the 5,000. That's my guess. He'll take the cash, no gambler he. Uh, and what about the mysterious letter from the late Mrs. Peters? There's not to be open till Christmas. I, I mean, until the, until the request has been accepted. <laughs> what can the envelope contain? Yeah. That reminds me, Toddy. We'll have to be ordering some more stationery soon. And your envelopes are much too transparent. You can read almost anything through them, particularly if you dampen it with alcohol. Well, um... <laughs> Dora, order some more, will you, darling, and tell him this time to be sure... Vicky, what are you dampening with alcohol? You, you've been beeping. Oh, how could you say such a thing? <laughs> Couldn't find any alcohol in the house, and, and holding it up to the window, that isn't beeping. Such nice... Uh, Oh, excuse me. Yeah, be an angel, darling, and see who that is while I get a quick wash. Angel on the wing, Toddy. And if this angel knows her hunches, it's Whistler's father, James McNeil Wellman. <laughs> Good evening, Mr. Wellman. My husband just came in. Uh, come in and sit down. I've only a few minutes, Mrs. Hall. Yeah, well, he'll be here in a moment. Then tell me, Mrs. Hall, you know something of art? Well, uh, if painting one's face over and over again, night and matinees is art, then I suppose. No, uh, yes, uh, you were an actress. I believe. It is possible <laughs> that you are better acquainted with art, uh, painting, that is, than a man of business like myself, or a man like Dr. Hall, who has limited his activities, his scope to college affairs. Uh, tell me, Mrs. Hall, uh, what you know of a painter named, um, that is to say, of a foreign artist, a French, I believe. He went by the name of, at least he was called, his pen name, I presume, a big painting, seven feet high. <laughs> you mean Goya? Of course I mean Goya. Who else should I mean? Well, I, I know a little about Goya. Most of his work hangs in the Prado, that famous art gallery in Madrid. 
He was probably Spain's greatest ah, painter. Mr. Wellman. Oh, yes. there you are, Toddy. Uh, Mr. Wellman has just been telling me all about Goya. Oh, yes, yes. The Black Goyas, of course. Dr. Uh, Hall, really I'm something. afraid I have too little time for your class in art appreciation. Oh. Uh, you've uh, heard of this uh, imposture, I understand. Uh, if it is an imposture, this uh, this uh, Goya painting that either is one or isn't in the terms of the will, uh, most unbusinesslike, uh, slipshod, I might say. Well, at least it was very kind and thoughtful of Mrs. Peters. I am quite aware of that, Mrs. Hall. I am uh, not without my share, my fair share of human feelings. Quality of mercy is not strained. That is, uh, gratitude, I mean. Uh, Mr. Wellman. What is it? <laughs> uh, we, we do not question for one moment your good heart and warm feelings. Yes. Oh. No. Now, Mr. Benson gave me most of the facts, I think, before he left here to call on you. Then I must tell you, Dr. Hall, that I have just left a board meeting. Half the board were in favor of accepting this, uh, this uh, painting, so-called. The other half, including me, is in favor of taking the 5,000 cash and uh, ending the whole matter. Uh, the picture is uh, very probably a fake, in which case Ivy would get nothing. Let us be practical, Dr. Hall. Let us be businessmen. We must take the 5,000. Well, very well, but why come to me? The meeting agreed that you should cast the deciding vote. Mr. Wellman, I understood from Mr. Benson that you wanted to accept this painting to hang in Clarence Wellman Hall. Uh, that was where, when there was no question of fraud. Uh, and, and it was a large painting. And uh, Clarence Wellman Hall is a large hall, Dr. Hall. <laughs> and there is a bare space on the east wall that needs filling. As an art lover myself, and having always admired the work of... Uh, what's his name? I... I... <laughs> <laughs> yes, and I, I don't blame you. But I find myself in a difficult position, having to cast the deciding vote. If we take the picture and it is finally judged to be a genuine Goya, Ivy College will be the proud possessor of one of the great works of one of the great painters. And if the board should decide to dispose of it to some public trust or art collection, it should bring a very substantial sum of money. On the other hand, we have the option... Dr. Of... Hall! What is it? Oh. <laughs> well, what is it? My time is valuable and, uh, and this matter must be settled. I am quite willing that Mrs. Hall, with her knowledge of art, uh, the theater, that is, I, I've already discussed the matter with her, Dr. Hall, her undoubted acquaintance uh, uh, with the work of this so-called, uh, this uh, Van Goya. Goya. I said Goya. This man Goya, I said. <laughs> uh, I, I'm willing, I, I say, to uh, accept Mrs. Hall's decision. Well, Vicky. Well, what my personal opinion has to do with art criticism, I, I really fail to see, but... I vote for taking the big chance. Take the gift in the spirit in which it was offered. Forget the small potatoes and the chicken feed. To heck with the consequences and the devil take the hindmost. It's late the following morning, and Mrs. Hall is expecting the doctor home for lunch. Vicky. Here, Toddy. Lunch will be ready in a few minutes. Oh, no hurry, my dear. Faculty meeting isn't until 2.30. That'll give me a full hour after lunch all to myself. And I will wager you dollars to your Aunt Emily's donuts that I won't be permitted to get away with it. Mm. Now, there's a little gremlin that sits up aloft whose one malicious objective is to disturb the intercurricular catnaps of W.T. Hall. <laughs> it's just as well, perhaps, Tori. Helps you keep you slim, soigné, and spelt. 
Coming from you, that's nice, Vicky. Last week, Mrs. Kuncannon referred to me as suave. Coming from anyone, that's nauseating, but from a, from a professor's wife, it's treason. But, um, uh, something is on your mind, my dear. The faintest of shadows flickers across your face. So treat me as an old family friend and tell me all about it. No, it's nothing, Toddy, but I'll give you just one guess who called. Wellman. He flicks as gruesome a shadow as anyone. Yes, but he wouldn't tell me what it was. He says he'll see you later, and he sounded quite upset. I'm afraid I didn't use my vote discreetly yesterday. Ah, you chose to vote honestly. Well, what I mean, perhaps, is that I'm beginning to believe I was wrong. No, I think that your instinct was right. You chose the, the bigger way. How much better to lose the gamble than to be in the ignominious position later of learning that the Boston Fine Arts Museum has acquired a masterpiece while Ivy has spent $5,000 on a station wagon and a new lawnmower. <laughs> now, when, when, when you think... Why, well, 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 Vicky? <laughs> Thank you, my oh, dear. Oh, darling, darling, Tori. I just had to hug you. You don't know how relieved I am. But... Them's the nicest words I've heard since... Well, since you said Happy New Year. <laughs> I, I only only said that... And I beg you not to move, my darling. I only said that your instinct will probably prove to be right again. In fact, whenever an issue arises that is outside the logical reasoning of, of an underpaid, though quite brilliant, college president, I, I have been content to leave it to you. Ever since Fanny Blair, as a matter of fact. Fanny Blair? Is she the redhead who won the Home Economics Award? Has she been sending you apples? <laughs> now, Vicky, I'm shocked. Not that the occasional apple may not agreeably lubricate the relations between master and pupil, uh, sometimes referred to as esprit de corps, uh, but I am shocked. <laughs> Have you forgotten your English folklore? And our walk across the meadows, from Bumbledon Ferry to Tipperton Town? Oh, yes. Of course, yes. And our problem at the crossroads... It was, it was just before we were married. Yes, it must have been late spring. Because the laburnum and the lilacs were putting on a tremendous show. Admission free. In my anxiety to impress you with the English countryside, I, I was a little afraid they were overacting. There was a rainstorm coming up, I remember. And we packed up the picnic basket and... And we were walking back to the station. Remember, Vicky? William. It's quite a walk back to the station. And it looks like rain. I hope we're on the right path. I can see a stile ahead of the signpost. Oh, what a wonderful day. Isn't it? Even when it rains, it's beautiful at this time of the year. I wasn't thinking only of the countryside, Victoria. I meant the day with you. Wonderful day, beautiful you, fortunate me. Thank you, William, dear. I've loved every minute of it, too. It's, it's been a picnic in every sense. After a week of grease paint, a day like this is better than any beauty treatment. Heaven only knows what I shall do when I return to America. Unless you... Unless I... No, no, I, I promised not to put any more pressure on, didn't I? You're to take as long as you want. It's only that... Only what? It's only that I, I can't help an occasional reminder. A tiny little nudge now and then. <laughs> well, they're, they're nice warm little nudges, though. Look, look, we're here at the crossroads. Oh, oh, very symbolic. Crossroads call for either dirty work 
Oh, momentous decision. <laughs> now, what does the sign say? Well, it says to the village, all right, but look where it's pointing. <laughs> two paths in two different directions, and the sign points right between them. Good, honest British compromise. Yeah. <laughs> plain British indifference. Well, which one should we take? Uh, you decide. Um, the left. It looks nicer. Good. Quick decisions. Gather no moss. Yeah, we've got no time to dilly-dally. Here comes the rain. Yes, we may have to run for it. You'll get wet. Well, I'm all right. I've got my raincoat. But what about you? Oh, nothing could worry me less. Uh, trotting beside you, you see a happy man. There isn't a raindrop born today that would have the heart to touch me. <laughs> William, look over there. Where? What luck. Oh, yes. Looks like an inn at the end of this field. By the big spreading chestnut. Fascinating. If the bla village blacksmith isn't standing under that tree with large and sinewy hands, I shall be disappointed. Well, we'd better take shelter for a moment. Ah, here we are. The door's open. What's this place called? There's the name up there on the sideboard. Oh, yes, I see. Oh, wonderful. It's called the Rose Revived. Now, what could be fairer? Here, William. Here's a bench on the side. Look at those odd characters in the corner. 18th century. What's the lad singing? It's an old ballad. Fanny Blair, I think. Tale of a village maiden and some unrighted wrong. Listen. Till the judge cried, there's someone has tutored you well. The day that young Hegan was doomed to die, the people rose up with a murmuring cry. If we catch her, we'll crop her. She falsely has sworn. Ah, what lovely things happen with you, Victoria. Or is it because I'm in love? William, dear William. The rain stopped. We must run. The barmaid tells me we're only ten minutes from the station. It seems I chose the right path. You certainly did, my dear. You certainly did. Remember that day? Of course I do. And ever since then, I've always had the greatest respect for your instinct. Well, I hope it lasts, because this time I may turn out to be the girl who took the wrong turning. Oh, nonsense, my dear. What you did was perfectly but right. I, I know, but you see, there's something else. Besides Mr. Wellman, there was a phone call from Mr. Benson, and oh. he said that this morning the Treasury Department, or the Customs, or I don't know, something, claimed that there would be a duty to pay in the event of the Go Goya turning out to be a fraud. In which case, it'll be valueless, and there can hardly be any duty. On a yeah, but Mr. Wellman, though, Toddy, if there are any charges or complications at all, charm boy is really going to flip his lid to use a handy little undergraduate expression. <laughs> uh, ne ne next Christmas, let's give him a top that he can blow whenever he... <laughs> uh, Dr. Hall speaking. This is Mr. Wellman. Did you hear from Mr. Benson, Dr. Hall? Uh, well, no, but Mrs. Hall spoke to him, and I haven't yet had a chance it's outrageous, to... outrageous, Dr. Hall. Simply outrageous. Now look at the mess we're in. I said mess. Oh, I don't think that we... That's just it. You don't think. And Mrs. Hall's fatal decision. Fatal, disastrous. And who's going to pay for it? That's what I want to know. Oh, duty, heavy duty. And on a forgery, too. Penalties, no doubt. Fines, heavy fines. Disgraceful publicity, too. Just because my advice wasn't taken. What's I be coming to? Changes will have to be made, Dr. Hall. Changes. 
is Mr. Wellman. Uh, Mr. Wellman, please keep calm for a moment. If you remember, in Mr. Benson's letter, he said that... Oh, oh, wait a minute. Letter, letter. letter. Uh, 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 Mr. Wellman, I'm sorry, but I'll have to call you back. I left the bathwater running. It's your bathwater at this time of the day. What... Uh, hunch, my dear. Instinct, of course. The letter. Where's the letter? What letter? Mrs. Peters. We can open it now. Uh, top drawer of my desk. I couldn't think of a good answer to Mr. Wellman, and the letter may give me one. Yes, 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 Toddy. Because it's not only a hunch, of course. Yes. What does it say? What does it say? What does it say? Wait, 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 wait. Here we are. Here, here. And, and in memory of my husband, to give to Ivy one of the finest examples of this great master's work that exists outside of Madrid. The, the overpainting that was applied to conceal the masterpiece from the invading Nazi vandals and which has served its purpose can, of course, be easily removed. The real Goya is underneath it. The beauty and greatness of this classic work... Vicky, Vicky, get Mr. Wellman on the phone immediately. Tell him to come over and pour his troubled waters on our oil. <laughs> The other actors in our play tonight were Herbert Butterfield as Mr. Wellman and Ken Peters as Mr. Benson. Our music was composed and conducted by Henry Russell. Tonight's script was written by... Um, uh, oh, dear, wait a minute. Um, tonight's uh, script was written by Ronald Coleman. Well, thank you, my dear. I, I loved doing it. It shows I have more than one string to my bow. Well, as long as I only have one bow to my string, I'm going to let him take me home. Good night, everyone. Good night. We'll be seeing you next week at this same time at the Halls of Ivy, starring Mr. and Mrs. Ronald Coleman. The Halls of Ivy was created by Don Quinn, directed by Nat Wolf, and presented by the Joseph Schlitz Brewing Company of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. We invite you to enjoy the Pulitzer Prize Playhouse on television on Friday night. Yesterday, by the way, the Pulitzer Prize Playhouse won the Emmy for the Best Dramatic Program on Television by the vote of the Academy of Television Arts and Sciences. This is Ken Carpenter speaking. Oh, we That surround us here today, and we will not forget, though we be far, far Ronald Coleman was the star and author of that episode of The Halls of Ivy from the winter of 1951. It came to you from the big broadcast on WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. According to the writer and TV sitcom expert Michael Carroll, Lucille Ball once called Ann Southern the best comedian in the business, bar none. Well, that's high praise, but Ms. Southern was a virtuoso dramatic actor as well. She got an Oscar nomination for her role in the 1987 movie The Whales of August, in which she starred with Betty Davis 
and Lillian Gish. We're about to hear her in a suspense episode in a role that sort of straddles both comedy and drama, with an emphasis on the latter. From August 12, 1948, and with some Autolite commercials remarkable for their featuring women characters, it's a play called Beware the Quiet Man, from the CBS series Suspense. In just a moment, Suspense with Ann Southern. Billy, turn that radio down. How can we play bridge? Okay, Mom. I like the Autolite show, but not so loud. Whose deal is it, May? Mine, Mary. My husband Ed always listens, too. When he's home on Thursdays, our house sounds just like his service station. I know what you mean. Tonight's probably spark plug night. You'd think the announcer with his commercials would be enough, but no. It's switched to auto light resistor. Spark plugs. <laughs> I know. Batteries and ignition systems. <laughs> well, Dora, what are you dreaming about? Oh, auto light? You mean the show with Ann Southern? Oh, Mary, tell Billy to turn up the radio again. I wouldn't miss a Billy, space for all. You turn the radio up, your Aunt Dora. Yes, ma'am. Suspense. Autolite and its 60,000 dealers and service stations bring you Radio's Outstanding Theater of Thrills. Starring tonight, Miss Anne Southern in Anton Leder's production of Beware the Quiet Man. A tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. soda with a twist of lemon. Okay, coming right up. Say, your name Margie? Yeah. How'd you know? You generally come in here with a heavy set guy, black wavy hair, wears a dye big diamond? Yeah. Yeah, he was in a while ago. Said to tell you he'd be late, but for you to be sure and wait for him. But I can't wait. I gotta get home to my... I gotta get home. How late do you say he'd be? Oh, about an hour. Oh, for crying out loud. Okay, give me some nickels. Yeah. Here you are. Thanks. Hello? Mr. Banning, please. Yeah, Mr. Arthur Banning. Arthur? Margie. Uh, I- I'm going to be late for supper. Yeah, I, I ran into a girl I used to know at Lincoln High. She wants me to have a drink with her. Yeah. And say, will you pick up some hamburger on the way home and start the potatoes? I'll be there as quick as I can. Bye. Now, here's your drink. Well, here's mud in your eye. Um, uh, there's a young fella down the end of the bar who wants to buy you one. No, thanks. Well, it looks like a nice guy. That tall blonde fellow over by the mirror? None other. And you got a whole lot to kill. Is he... He isn't drunk, is he? Nah, he's had a few, but he always carries it good. I might help pass the time. Say, 
What's it to you, anyway? Five bucks. He said, I'd sure appreciate it. He offered you five bucks to get me to have a drink with him? Yeah. <laughs> he is kind of good looking. Well, okay. Sure, what the heck, I'll have a drink with him. Okay, so you're married. Nothing wrong with having a drink together, so what? I figure what your old man don't know won't hurt him. I said I'd have a drink with you. If you've got any other ideas, I'll buy my own. Oh, now, don't get me wrong, honey. I spotted you as a good kid the minute you ankled in here. You just like excitement, that's all. And I'm the guy that can dish it out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you see, uh, I'm a private eye. <laughs> yeah, no kidding, like you hear about on the radio. Gee, what a break for me. You just stick around me, honey, and you'll get plenty of excitement. Yeah, I'll bet. You know, you take this new client of mine now. Bet you anything he makes a headlines tomorrow. <laughs> Ten to one, he'll murder his wife. Oh, yes, sure. He hired me to find out if his wife's been stepping out. I felt kind of sorry for the guy. Probably doesn't have the money to take her out himself. He's a bank teller at Second National. Bank teller? Bank teller? My... What's his name? Uh-uh, honey. No, no, that, that stuff's confidential. Matter of fact, I, I'm not supposed to talk about cases at all. Oh, go on. I won't tell anybody. Well, no, you don't look like the kind of babe that blabs everything she knows. How about that drink, huh? Sure. Hey, Charlie, two over here, huh? In the works. You know, he sort of gave me the creeps, this guy. He sat there eating his lunch, calm as you please, and all the time figuring how to kill his wife. How'd you know what he was figuring? Well, for one thing, he didn't want evidence for a divorce. He sort of looked at me funny and said, I just want to know, that's all. If Margie is stepping out, I'll take care of it my own way. Margie? Yeah, yeah, that's his wife's name, Margie. Uh, hey, what's the matter? Uh, nothing. No, nothing at all. Hey, you don't look so good. Maybe you drank the last one too fast. No, no, I'm fine. I'm, I'm just naturally pale, that's all. You were saying about this client... You figure he's going to murder his wife? Oh, sure, sure. It's in the back. Either that or suicide. Suicide? But he's more the type for murder. Oh, one of those big, brutal guys. Sort of, sort of mean-looking, huh? No. <laughs> Quiet, mousy. Kind doesn't have much to say. Those are the guys you got to watch. But why? Because they never let you know what they're really thinking. Not until it's too late. They don't? You know, most guys, when they find their wives stepping, will raise cane. Maybe they'll even get a divorce, but... They don't get sore enough to murder. Yeah. But these quiet fellas, you know, they put the little woman on a pedestal. You wouldn't catch them out with other women, not in a million years. And when they discover their one and only has been kicking up her heels, oh, brother, watch out. Golly. And the worst of it is they go on acting like nothing's wrong, you see. And then all of a sudden, whango, they explode. They explode? Yeah, yeah. You know, like I always say, beware the quiet man. Like this new client of mine, for example, calm. You never met anybody calmer, but I'll What does bet... he look like? Oh, uh, well, he's just about average, I guess. Brown hair, getting sort of thin on the top. A little bit stoop-shouldered. Medium height? Wear glasses? Yeah, yeah, you know him? No, no, I, I don't know any of the boys. Excuse me. Hey, where are you going? i got to make a phone call, just remember something. Don't go away, I'll be right back. Ralph? Margie, I can't see you this afternoon. No, I'm not sorry about you being late. But whatever you do, don't come into Charlie's place. Yeah, that's where I am now. You bet there's something wrong. There's plenty wrong. Either this guy I'm talking to is crazy, 
Or else Arthur's planning to murder me. For suspense, Autolite is bringing you Miss Anne Southern in radio's outstanding theater of thrills, Suspense. Well, Dora, we're down 200 on that hand. Oh, are we? It's easy to see there's no playing bridge with you girls with suspense on. So let's stop playing and switch to Autolite spark plugs or whatever for the rest of the half hour, huh? Oh, Mary, I could kiss you. You're such an understanding sister-in-law, and I don't want to miss a single word. What about you, May? Dora, did you know that my husband knows Frank Martin, the Autolite salesman? He does? Mm -hmm. Well, then let's listen to Mr. Martin. Right now, you can get Autolite resistor spark plugs almost anywhere in the United States. They're sensational. Why, no other spark plug will give and maintain such performance. Autolite worked with leading car and truck manufacturers, and they ignition engineered a 10,000-ohm resistor right into the Autolite spark plug that permits a wider spark gap setting and maintains it far longer than in other spark plugs. Actually, when you replace your narrow-gap spark plugs with a set of wide-gap Autolite resistor spark plugs, you can tell the difference in your car. Oh, dear. And to think that I'll hear every word of that again from Ed when I get home. Now, here's the simple lowdown. As a result of the wide gap in the resistor spark plugs, your engine idles smoother, you have better luck with lean gas mixtures and save gas. And within established limits, you reduce spark plug interference with radio and television reception. Yes, and today you can get the resistor spark plug from almost any of Autolite's 60,000 dealers. That's the biggest spark plug news in years. And now Autolite brings back to our Hollywood soundstage Miss Ann Southern as Margie in Beware the Quiet Man. A tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. I stood there in the phone booth a minute after I hung up. I wasn't scared exactly, but I had to let those words sink in. Either this guy I'm talking to is crazy, or else Arthur's planning to murder me. I went back to the bar. I had to find out. Oh, beautiful. I thought you got lost. Sit down, sit down. Mm. Thanks. Now, about this fella, the one who's going to murder his wife. Oh, let's can the shop talk. I want to hear about you. I don't even know your name. Did he say what made him think she was stepping out? Ah, she's supposed to belong to some bridge club. The bank teller's wife's got up. But uh, friends of his saw her downtown a couple of times on her bridge dates. Is that all? You know, honey, you're pretty smart. You, you make like you're really interested in a guy's work. Oh, but I am. You know, I had a little doll once. I thought plenty I would, would have married her, maybe. But only every time I, I started talking about a case, she shut me up. Never mind about your little dolls. What about this guy? <laughs> hey, you're jealous. Well, what do you know? I'm not jealous. I only want to know. It's okay, honey. It's okay. Sure, a cute little doll like you doesn't want to hear a guy spotting off about another dame. Yeah, maybe I had a few too many. I just want to hear about this bank teller. Have you met his wife, maybe? No, but he showed me a picture of her. Oh, then you know what she looks like. Oh. Hey, what's the funny? Never mind, the joke's on me. Hey, maybe you better not have him any more to drink. You're acting kind of screwy. Oh, I feel wonderful. Well, here's to you. A long life. Yeah. 
A long, long life. Yeah. Donna Hatch. <laughs> yeah. Poor little Margie. You know, you showed me a snapshot of her in her bathing suit. Mm-hmm. Oh, boy, was she stacked. As a matter of fact, uh, about your height and uh, build, you're blonde like you, too. Was she as pretty as I am? I, I couldn't see her face. It's kind of blurred. He, oh. He's bringing me a better picture of her tomorrow. Oh, I think I'd like another drink. You know, honey, you better start taking vitamins or something. You're pale as a sheep. I said I wanted another drink. Oh, yeah, sure. Hey, hey Charlie, two more the same, huh? Okay. Yeah, poor little Margie. You know, that's one thing I can never figure out. The cute little dolls with flirtatious eyes always pick some homely, quiet gink when it comes to settling down. And the handsome he-man who has to beat off the dames with a club, what does he do? He marries a drab little pigeon. Yeah, that's why we get so many axe murders, I guess. Axe murders? Only in this case, he'll use a gun. But he doesn't have a... I mean, most bank clerks don't own guns. Oh, well, this one does. Now. Give me a light, will you? Yeah, sure. There you are. Hey, maybe if you lay off a booze, honey, and take a tonic or something, you'll feel better. Look at your hands. They're trembling. How do you know he has a gun? Oh. Oh, I get it. <laughs> Why'd you tell me? Tell you what? You got a squeamish stomach. All this talk about guns and shooting. Oh, honey, I'm sorry. I won't say one more word about it, I promise. I'm not squeamish, and I don't need vitamins. I want to know how you know this bank teller guy has a gun. I saw him going to a pawn shop and buy one. You know, honey, I, I could really go for you. It's a funny thing, we never even introduced ourselves. That's something we got to do. My name's Cluson. Lem Cluson. What's yours? You mean that man bought a gun and now he's home waiting to murder his wife in cold blood? Oh, no, no. He won't do anything till he gets my report. Oh. You see, tomorrow I check with her friends to see if she's been going to bridge club like she's supposed to. Yeah. And I meet my client for lunch and get a picture of Margie. Mm. And I take it around to the downtown bars to find out if she's been seen with anybody. And then I give my client the report when he gets off work. Yeah. And then? And if his suspicions are right, and they usually are, it's all over but the shooting. The shooting? Yeah. Bang, bang, honey. That's all. Bang, bang. <sighs> Say, uh, what'd you say your name was? I've got to get home. Hello, dear. Hello, Arthur. Oh, I was beginning to worry about you. Well, uh, I really couldn't help being late for dinner. I wanted to leave, but Maybelle, that's her name. You know, the girl I used to go to school with, she kept talking yatta to yatta, and I just couldn't walk out on her in the middle of a sentence. Oh, that's all right. I didn't mind. Say, the potatoes are already like you told me. Shall I... Uh... No, no, I'll hurry dinner. You just sit down and read the paper. Huh? Well, well thank you, dear. You all right? You, you look a little flushed. Oh, well, I'm, I'm fine. I was just rushing, that's all. Uh, be ready in a minute. Uh-huh. Did you have a hard day, darling? Oh, usual. People are taking out more money these days than they're putting in. Yeah, prices are awful, aren't they? Hmm. Nothing unusual? I mean, nothing happened today? Oh, a, a funny thing. Man came rushing in this morning, first thing the doors were opened. Wanted to withdraw all the money from their joint account before his wife beat him to it. Seems she was leaving him for another man. Oh, how awful. Oh, yeah. While he was there, she appeared. You should have heard her carry on. She was a real shrew. Well, what happened? Oh, nothing. He didn't say a word. He, he was a gentleman. But I'll bet if he'd had a gun, 
He'd have killed her. Oh, well. <clears throat> Seems things like that happen all the time. Newspaper's full of it. Are you mad at me, Arthur? Hmm? Are you mad at me? Am I mad at you? Why, no. Should I be? Arthur, darling, I've, I've got something to confess. Well, far away. I didn't go to bridge club last week. No? I thought you'd die before you gave up bridge. Oh. Really, honey, you look awfully seedy. No, I'm fine. I, I feel fine. I, I had sort of a quarrel with Lorraine. I, I, I didn't want to tell you because you're always talking about how women can't get along with each other. Instead of going to bridge club, I went shopping. Instead. Well, fine. Only I hope you didn't go over the budget. Oh, no. That's good. I always said bridge was a waste of time. Then you're not angry about anything? Why, no. Why should I be? Oh, Arthur. What's the matter now? I don't deserve a swell husband like you. Oh, oh I'm not so hot. Oh, you always do the dinner dishes and bring me my breakfast in bed on Sunday mornings. The only morning you have to sleep. Arthur, I'd feel terrible if anything ever happened to us. Well, what's going to happen? Suppose someday you got real mad and exploded. Exploded? Yeah. What if, it, what if you got a gun and shot me dead? Oh, for heaven's sakes, Margie. Where do you get those crazy ideas? You mean, no matter how mad you got, no matter what I did to make you mad, you wouldn't shoot me dead? Now, Margie, you know I'd rather die than hurt one hair on your head. Oh, Arthur, not suicide. Say, how many drinks did you and Maybelle have? Arthur, I want you to know I'm going to change. I'm going to be a better wife from now on. I'll stay home all the time and darn your socks. You? <laughs> Darning socks. You just wait and see. I'll get up every morning and, and make your breakfast. Oh, Margie, you know you won't do any of those things. I will, too. The nonsense. Women like you never change. I will, too. I'll change right away. Tomorrow. Besides, I don't want you to. Oh, come here, baby. I want you to stay just exactly the way you are right now. Just exactly, Arthur? I love you very much. Just the way you are. Oh, Arthur. <sighs> Hey, that reminds me, I made an appointment for you tomorrow at 10. You're having your picture taken. My picture? I showed a fellow that old snapshot of you today. The one we took at the beach? Oh. It was so dog-eared he couldn't see what you looked like, and I realized we didn't have a single decent picture of you at all, so but, I... But why have it taken tomorrow? Well, the studio next to the bank is having a special advertising the new 60-minute service. 60-minute service? Yeah. That way I can pick up the finished picture before I go to lunch. I don't want my picture taken. Well, now you're being silly. I won't. I won't do it. Oh, honey, what's the matter? Don't touch me. I won't have my picture taken. I won't. Sat there eating his lunch, calm as you please, and all the time figuring how to kill his wife. <laughs> Quiet, Mousy. That's the kind you gotta watch. Never let you know what they're really thinking. And all of a sudden, wango, they explode. Bang, bang, honey. That's all. Bang, bang. Oh, no. There must be some mistake. Arthur wouldn't hurt me. He wouldn't. I won't think about it. I'll take a sleeping powder and go to bed. The gun. He did buy a gun. It's all true. Every word of it's true. Hello? Ralph! I told you never to call me here. No, no, it isn't all right. Arthur bought a gun home last night. Yes, a gun. 
Claimed he was keeping it for a friend. That's all he'd say. Yeah, I, I think so. Just a minute, I'll look. Ralph, the gun's gone. He must have taken it to work. Oh, but don't you see? As soon as he finds out for sure, he'll kill... No, 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 no! I never want to hear from you again! I've got to think. I've got to think. Oh, not the doorbell. Oh, Lorraine. Well, who'd you expect, darling? Frankenstein? Aren't you going to invite me in? Well, I was just going out. Don't be silly. You're not dressed. I'm in a hurry, Lorraine. Well, I... So am I. I'm late at the beauty shop now. But I was driving past anyway, so I thought I'd drop in and give you the latest on the girls at the bridge club. Well, some other day. I've... Honestly, Margie, this is choice. You know what I heard about Mrs. Dentler? You know, she's the wife of Ben Dentler, the new teller at the bank. The one from Chicago. Lorraine, if you don't mind. Oh, that's right. You haven't met her. Of course, you haven't been around lately. Well, she's kind of a pretty little thing in a plucked eyebrow sort of way. But, but if... You should hear what her husband told my husband. Lorraine, I... Of course, I promised Ed I wouldn't breathe a word. But crying out loud, Lorraine. Well, what brought that on? I haven't time to stand and gossip. What's wrong with you today, anyway? You're as nervous as a cat. All right, perfectly all right. But here it is, 10.30. 10.30? Good heavens, I'm a half hour late. Well, goodbye. I've got to run. Oh, darling. Be sure and read the Gazette tomorrow. They're running a story about our bridge benefits. Okay, goodbye. Pictures and everything. They didn't have time to take a new picture, but I gave them when we took the Valentine party. The one I was in? They're publishing it? Why, sure. I don't want my picture in the paper. But yours was the only flattering one in the group. The reporter picked you out right away. He seemed quite smitten. He? Oh, yes, yes. He asked all about you. Of course, I told him that you didn't come to meetings very often. The Gazette doesn't use men reporters for society? Well, they do now, dear. He didn't sound much like a reporter, though. He kept calling me, honey. Tall, blonde, fast talker? Why, yes. And you gave him my picture? Well, of course. What was his name? Oh, well, let's see. Uh, yeah. Funny name. Mm. I think it was Clusen. Lem Clusen. <laughs> Charlie, it's a matter of life and death. I've got to get a hold of Lem before noon. Well, like I said, he ain't been in. You sure he never told you where he works? No, he's come short for some private detective outfit. Oh, give me some nickels, lots of nickels. i got some telephoning to do. Act me, detective agency. Do you have a man named Clusen working for you? Lem Clusen? No? Thanks. Brandon agency? I want Mr. Clusen, Lem Clusen. Oh, yeah, I guess I have the wrong number. Hawkshaw Detectives, I'm looking for a man named Lem Clusen. No, I don't want to hire you to find him. But you're the last one in the book. He's got... Okay, sorry. No luck? No. See, I just remembered. Lem said the guy he worked for just opened up in town. Probably ain't in the phone book yet. Go on, kid, get out of here. Bank teller suicide. Extreme read on. Ah, about that fresh it. kid, just because I won't let him in here peddling his papers, he yells in the door. Did he say bank suicide? He yells in here every darn day. Oh. Hey, wait, wait. Hey, you didn't finish oh. your drink, hey? Hey, Newsy. Newsy. Hey, boy. Hey, newspaper. Boy. Give me a book, boy. Read all about it. Bank suicide. Hey, you, boy. Paper lady? Did you say suicide? Right in the second national bank. You want a paper? Yeah. Here. 
Guy's wife steps out with another Joe. So the poor dope says, goodbye, Marge, and pulls the trigger. Here you are, lady. Frank suicide. Read all about it. Well, well, if it isn't Margie. Get away from me, Lem Clusen. Heard you were looking for me. Well, here I am. Boy, have I got a lot to tell you. Let me alone. I want to read. Oh, that write-up's no good. Here, give it here. Yeah, that's better. Now, come on into Charlie's, and I'll give you the insight. Give me though. back my paper, you, you murderer. Murderer? Hey, wait a minute. Oh, I get it. You figure he bumped himself off on account of my report. <laughs> That's a screwy part. He didn't even wait for the report. I got it right here in my pocket. Take your hand off my arm. Oh, look, honey. Now, come on. You're coming into Charlie's if I have to drag you. Why don't you leave me alone? Eh, I figured you'd be sore. Might spotting off the way I did in Charlie's yesterday. But how did I know who you were? Oh, here we are. Hey, Charlie, yeah. two bourbon highs double. I don't want a drink. Should have seen my face this morning when that screwy friend of yours gave me the picture of your bridge oh, club. Oh, never mind. And there you were, as real as life and just as cute. I says to myself, why, you dumb ox, you got that little doll worried sick. And then when I read in the paper about my client giving your husband the gun to keep for fear he'll use it on himself, I think, holy cow. What did you say? And then I think, I bet she figures I planned the whole thing just to scare her. What do you mean? Oh, now, don't try to kid me, Margie. You know you figured that client of mine was your husband. That he was going to bump you off? You mean he wasn't? No, no. Your name's Banning, isn't it? Yeah. Well, my client's name was Dentler, Benjamin Dentler. <laughs> Funny thing, his wife being named Margie, too. Yeah, I never thought he'd do it anyway. Oh, I think I'd like that drink after all. Well, here's to us, honey. So that's the gossip Lorraine was trying to tell me. Dentler, the teller from Chicago. You know, I've been thinking a lot about you. And Margie. Arthur really was keeping the gun for a friend of his. Hey, I'll tell you what, honey. I know a quiet little spot across town where we can eat, dance, anything we want. He might have told me about Dentler. It's a cute little place, baby. They got a knocked-out band and what a floor show. I wonder why Arthur wouldn't talk to me about it. Well, what do you say? Say? To what? Well, you and me, honey. Our date. Oh. <laughs> You're asking me to step out with you? <laughs> well... Why not? How about my husband? Oh, that mousy little guy. We got nothing to worry about from him. But I thought you always said, beware the quiet man. You never know what they're really thinking. But this is... No, but. If you'll pardon me, Mr. Lem Clusen, I'm going home and start his supper. you and Southern for a splendid performance. Miss Southern will be back in just a moment. Dora, I apologize. That show was better than a six-no-trump hand. Why, Mary, first thing you know, you'll be in Ed's class, quacking about autolite resistor spark plugs like Donald Duck. Deal me a great big hand, Mary, and watch me get back that 200 we went down. You know, I must get me a set of those spark plugs. Why not? Ask Ed tomorrow to put a set of those Autolite resistor spark plugs in your car. Oh, well then, May, will you tell Ed I'll be over tomorrow? I certainly will. My old car is going to get Autolite resistor spark plugs, too. Yes, switching to Autolite is safe, sane, sound, sober judgment, and a sure way to spark plug satisfaction. That's why everybody's switching to Autolite. Autolite means resistor spark plugs. Ignition engineered spark plugs. Autolite means batteries. Stay full batteries. Autolite means ignition system. The lifeline of your car. And now, here again is Miss Ann Southern. Hmm. 
I've enjoyed this appearance on Suspense very much. And as a regular Suspense listener, I'm looking forward to next week when Martha Scott stars in Crisis, a powerful study in... Suspense. Southern appears by courtesy of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer Studios, producers of Julia Misbehaves, starring Walter Pidgeon and Greer Garson. Tonight's suspense play was written by Toby Hall, with music composed by Lucian Morawick and conducted by Lud Gluskin. The entire production was under the direction of Anton M. Leder. Next Thursday, same time, you will hear Martha Scott in Crisis. Suspense, the story called Beware the Quiet Man, from the summer of 1948, and from the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arald Bailey is our co-producer. Kenny Pirog and Mike Kidd are our audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington, in HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. Well, midterm elections are just around the corner, and ever on the lookout for useful pretenses to play some of these vintage radio titles, we came across an episode of that distinguished, short-lived adult western, Luke Slaughter of Tombstone. Despite boasting one of radio's greatest producers, William N. Robeson, and musical directors, Wilbur Hatch, the series ran for a mere four months. If it had come along, say, seven years earlier, it might have made it, but 1958 was not a year to start a new network radio drama in the full-blown television era. So we were glad to find an episode with an election theme this fall when the mid-year races are upon us. It's a story called Worth Its Salt, a western with a commercial voiced by a woman, rare for that time, and it comes from May 4th, 1958, CBS and Luke Slaughter of Tombstone. Slaughter's my name, Luke Slaughter. Cattle's my business. It's a tough business. It's big business. I've got a big stake in it. And there's no man west of the Rio Grande big enough to take it from me. Luke Slaughter of Tombstone. Slaughter of Tombstone, Civil War cavalryman turned Arizona cattleman. Across the territory, from Yuma to Fort Defiance, from Flagstaff to the Machucas, and below the border through Chihuahua and Sonora, his name was respected or feared, depending on which side of the law you were on. Man of vision, man of legend, Luke Slaughter of Tombstone. I'm Irma Dutro, color stylist for O'Brien Paints. Our musical theme hardly needs introduction. Just as the many instruments blend into this symphony, so O'Brien blends many pigments into the newest fashion right colors for your home, giving more color per color. We have selected O'Brien's exciting new colors of the year, after consulting many leading decorators and home furnishings experts of the country. And because all these colors are decorator-approved, 
you are assured of rich, authentic new colors for your own home. Your nearest O'Brien paint dealer, listed in the yellow pages of your phone book, has a free color chip folder for you. He'll help you select O'Brien paints in these exclusive new colors of the year for both inside and outside your home. Stop in and see him soon. And now, Luke Slaughter of Tombstone. Ed Craig came to Tombstone from the east a little after I settled here. Ed was well fixed, didn't have to scratch out a living like most of us. And in his quiet, likable manner, he soon proved to be the kind of man Arizona needed. Yes, I think I can do some good for the territory in Washington, if the voters want to send me there. You certainly can, Ed. Our delegate ought to be a much stronger man than some of the ones we've sent. Yeah, I got all the respect in the world for Mr. Craig Luke. But what's the sense of electing a good man to the United States Congress when he don't even have a vote after he gets there? He'll have a vote when Arizona becomes a state. Meanwhile, we need a delegate who can make the federal government understand our needs and our future. Yeah, Paul Gallagher's again statehood. He says if we got it, we'd be taxed out of our boots. The way it is now, he says, we're getting a free ride. <laughs> it seems to me Paul Gallagher's again progress. <laughs> I'm afraid the main reason he's running against me is to get that free ride to Washington and back every year. <laughs> That's about the size of it. And he doesn't need the free part any more than you do. He's made a wad of money out of his saloon and his gambling room. I wouldn't know about that. All I know is that he bellowed like a branded longhorn about half the gambling license fees going into the school fund. <laughs> bellowed like a branded longhorn. <laughs> Mr. Craig, you're even starting to talk something like a Westerner. He thinks like an American, Wichita. And that's the kind of man Arizona needs for its delegate. Remember, I still have to be elected. You will be. You know, I have a personal reason for wanting to be in Washington. My little girl goes to school in Baltimore. Oh, you got a sprout? I didn't know that. Show Wichita the picture in your watch, Ed. Yeah. Well, here it is. Why, she ain't no sprout. She's a grown-up young lady. And pretty as a spotted puppy riding through snowstorm in a little red wagon. <laughs> Thanks, Wichita. Well, I've got to be getting along, Luke. Thanks for your confidence. Well, I wish you wouldn't hurry, Ed. I have an appointment over at Gallagher Saloon. I'm, uh, buying a gold mine. What? That's right. An old prospector named Van Ling wants to sell his claim. Says it's more fun discovering gold than working to get it out of the ground. Now, now, wait a minute, Ed. I've never heard of any worthwhile gold ore in these parts. Oh? The silver. Shiflin's strike proved that, but well, I'd never gamble on gold. Well, I'd never gamble on no more silver. I figure old Shiflin found the only load in the Mule Mountains. Van Ling took me out to his claim, and I watched him take the samples. They assayed high enough to be worth taking a chance. Well, it's your money, Ed. But you're no more a mining expert than I am. I know, I know. I just figure I can put some men to work. And if the vein's as rich as it seems to be, their families will be comfortable for life. You mean you're going to hire on a profit-sharing basis? Uh -huh. I've got as much money as I need. And I hope what the men get, they'll sort of invest back in Arizona. Uh, what cash money wages you paying? <laughs> exactly what Luke pays you, Wichita. And if you quit him to work for me, 
You might not get your ranch job back if the claim peters out. <laughs> I wasn't asking for no different job. I know when I'm well off, when I'm a-setting on a horse. <laughs> Just don't get so wrapped up in helping people that you forget to campaign, Ed. Because you can really help them when you're Arizona's delegate to Congress. Four thousand eight hundred, four thousand nine hundred, five thousand. That's the correct amount, Mr. Craig, and you got yourself a gold mine. Fine, Mr. Van Ling. The papers seem to be in order, and I'll take care of filing the transfer. That's a lot of cash money to be carrying around Tombstone Van. Hmm? Care to leave it in my safe overnight? Well, no, I, I, I might just do that, Mr. Gallagher. Where that is the safe? In my office. Well, Craig, this will be an interesting experience for you. I think so. I think it'll be a profitable one. Well, if it is, maybe you'll quit harping on statehood for the territory. Government will take it all away in taxes. Statehood's a few years away, Mr. Gallagher. No matter which one of us goes to Washington. Hey, your ideas are too fancy for us out here, Craig. Gonna have a Westerner to represent the West. We'll see what the people decide. Yeah, that we will. And no hard feelings either way. Mr. Van Ling, mm. if you change your mind about joining the mine crew, just look me up. No, it's pretty for certain I won't. Well, keep in touch anyway. Remember, you'll get a share of the profits. Come along to my office, old-timer. All right. Give you a receipt. Electioneer if you want to, Craig, even if this is my place. I'll let the electioneering go until I round up some miners. <laughs> hold it, hold it. Now, go ahead. It's worth laughing at. <laughs> A share of the profits. <laughs> we put it over on him real smart like, eh, Mr. Gallagher? Uh, that wasn't hard. Give me the money, Van. I get 300 of it, remember? That's right. 100 now and 200 when I know you're in Yuma. I'd, uh, I'd kind of like to stay around and watch the fun. Uh, your mouth's too big, old-timer. Uh, I wouldn't want Craig to find out he actually bought that claim from me. Well, I'd never breathe a word. And you fix the papers yourself. Uh, you're going to Yuma. By the time you get there, it'll be time to start spreading the word that Mr. Edward Craig, candidate for delegate from the territory of Arizona, is pouring a fortune into a salted gold mine. <laughs> I bet you win that election, Mr. Gallagher. Uh, safest bet you'll ever make. When the people find out how little Craig knows about the West, <laughs> they'll laugh him right out of Arizona. The claim didn't look like much to me. There were traces of gold in the sandstone where old Van Ling had roughed out the start of a mine shaft, but they were shallow deposits, and they disappeared when Craig's men got to tunneling a real shaft. The crew worked with picks and shovels and drew their pay regularly. And then at last the tracks and mine carts and heavy ore-crushing equipment arrived in Benson by rail. And the whole mine force went down to mule freighted back to Tombstone. I persuaded Ed to make a trip to the mine with Wichita and me while the men weren't around. We'll make a lot more progress when we get the machinery in, Luke. Well, you'll dig deeper, faster, that's sure. Uh, ain't no machinery been invented that'll put gold in the ground where there ain't none. I don't want to put it in. I, I want to get it out. Do you mind my asking how much this equipment's set in your back, Ed? About 10000 Another couple thousand to ship it. Then with your payroll, you're close to 20000 in the hole. Uh, I think it's a sound investment. 
Now, uh, you mind me asking you something, Luke? Nope. You're going to ask me to keep my nose out of your personal business. Not at all. <laughs> I- I'm just curious about that old muzzle-loading rifle. Well, I've been studying up on gold. This antique gun's for a little experiment I want to make. Whoa. Whoa there, fella. Whoa. Whoa. Yeah. Uh, uh, Mary's Pride Mine. <laughs> you got a sign and a tunnel, anyway. I named it after my daughter. You'll be proud as punch when I telegraph her we've hit high-grade ore. Well, I've got some high-grade gold nuggets here, Ed. Hmm? I'm going to put a charge of powder in this old blunderbuss. Tamp the wadding. And use a nugget for a bullet. And fire into the rock near the shaft opening. Now we'll repeat the experiment. Well, uh, what kind of nonsense is this, Luke? You better sort of hope it is nonsense, Mr. Craig. Here goes another one. Now, let's take a look at the sandstone. Well, how about it, Ed? Look like the place where Van Ling chipped off the samples? Why, yes. That's just the way the gold flicks were, were distributed. Well, Luke, I bought a salted mine, didn't I? I'm afraid you did, Ed. You fire soft gold into soft rock, and it looks for all the world like the real thing. You was a patchy for one of the scummiest tricks a westerner can play on an easterner, Mr. Craig. I, uh, I... <laughs> when this gets out, I'm going to shape up as a fine candidate to represent the people of the West. That may have been what someone was thinking when you fell for the trick. And I doubt if old Van Ling is much interested in politics. And now, Act Two of William N. Robeson's production of Luke Slaughter of Tombstone. Ed Craig had bought a salted gold mine. There wasn't any doubt about it. And if word got out, ridicule was going to ruin his chance of beating Paul Gallagher in the election for territorial delegate to the United States Congress. As I see it, gentlemen, there's only one thing I can do. Close up the mine, huh? No, Wichita. Keep digging. My men have their families in Tombstone. Some of them have brought them a long way to settle here. If people think I'm a fool, they'll just have to think it. But I'm not going to shut down until I find something else for the men to do. Can you afford it, Ed? I can, for a while, anyway. And just because the top stratum was salted is no proof there isn't pay dirt further in. Mr. Craig, I wouldn't trade a spavin broomtail range mustang for this whole dang rock pile. And neither would anybody else in their right senses. Wichita. Ed, we both admire you, and we both wish you all the luck in the world. Oh, of course we do. I never said I didn't wish you luck, but you're sure going to need it. Election day was getting close, 
and Ed Craig's chances looked worse and worse. Out here, the weak and the foolish don't survive long. And in the eyes of the hard-working settlers, Ed looked more than a little foolish. Money doesn't come easy to our people. They don't like to see a man throw it away, especially when they don't understand his motives. And Paul Gallagher slandered those motives, even to the men who were benefiting from them. Howdy there, Mr. Rollinson. Howdy. What'll it be? Whiskey, I guess. Oh, put your money away, my friend. Huh? This is on the house. Well, it's very nice of you, Mr. Gallagher. Still working for Craig at the Mary's Pride? That's right. But maybe not for long, eh? Well, I don't know. We sure ain't finding pay dirt, but Craig keeps handing over our wages. Yes, those wages aren't quite as much as you hope to make on the deal. Well, no, but if we make a strike, we're all going to share in the profits. Oh, that Craig is a fast talker. But I'll bet you wouldn't have moved your family down from Globe if you'd known it was for just a few weeks' poor pay. Pardon me for interrupting. But it's been a few months, and it's mighty good pay. Well, Slaughter, are private conversations between my customers and me any concern of yours? When they're derogatory to one of the finest men in the territory, yes. Mr. Slaughter and Mr. Craig's nice enough, but we were led to believe we were going to make a lot of money. I bet you're making more now than you've ever made in your life. How long is it going to last, Slaughter? When the election's over, Craig will shut up that mine like it was a pest house. What makes you think so? Because Craig's not a complete fool. He got stuck with a salted mine. He figured he'd hide it under a big gesture. A gesture that might even get him elected. Then when he got to Washington, he'd make it up in graft. Got any more to say, Gallagher? Only that Arizona folks aren't stupid enough to be taken in by an eastern swindler. I dare you to say that again. Any place except in your own miserable gambling house. You heard me this time. No need to chew my cabbage twice. You better come with me, Rollinson. Well, as long as Mr. Gallagher's setting up drinks. Have it your own way. But remember who's setting up the food for your kids. Duke, I don't see what good we're doing, Mr. Craig. By coming out to the mine when he ain't even here. We may be doing a lot of good. Yeah, but the election's day after tomorrow. And the way people are talking, he ain't got a chance to win. Craig knows that too, Wichita. But he wouldn't be nearly as disappointed over losing as he would be to find his miners have let him down. Yeah, appears he ain't doing much mining today. Looks more like they're having themselves a sociable. Well, I'll be... Gallagher's talking to him. Whoa, whoa. Whoa, Gallagher. I'd be doing you men a favor if I came out and told you what Craig is trying to pull. Uh, as for myself, I don't believe he got the assayed samples from this claim at all. I don't believe he paid old Van Ling any $5,000. I think the whole thing was a planned swindle to get him to Washington and to make you pay taxes to a state and a federal government. I told you not to call Craig a swindler again, Gallagher. Now, wait, wait. Wait for what? I'll take that gun, Gallagher. And now I'll take you. Now, boys, as you know, Mr. Craig is campaigning in Prescott. He'll be back for the election, and it doesn't look like he can win. Craig isn't a mining expert. He fell for assaulted claim. I told him so weeks ago, and I guess all Arizona knows it now. 
But he kept all of you working because he felt a responsibility to you and your families. And for some strange reason, because he still has faith in this mine. Maybe that faith boils down to faith in the West and the men who want to live here. Now, what do you say we forget about the election and when Ed Craig comes home, we'll show him the longest mine tunnel he ever saw, whether there's gold in it or not. I'm going to dig. Wichita's going to dig. How about the rest of you? Keep those oil cars coming back, men. We'll keep them filled up. Uh, That was a pretty enticing speech you made, Luke. When I started swinging this pick, I almost enjoyed it. But now the rock's getting awful hard. Keep swinging anyway. Yeah, but it's so doggone. Well, now, now it's soft. Where? Right here. Look. You see? Soft and kind of lightish colored. Wichita, this... Get that light in closer. Yeah, yeah. This is silver. Silver? Silver. And it looks like as clean a vein as was ever found in the West. Let's stop in at Gallagher's, man. Gallagher, we're having a little celebration. Thought you might want to set up a few rounds. You keep out of here, Slaughter. Unless you want a warrant for battery slapped on you. Yeah, battery is right. You look like you was run over by a stagecoach. You get out, too. All of you, get out. I don't need your votes. Every vote counts, Gallagher. Sure you don't want to set the boys up? I told you to get out. There's one thing I'd like to settle first. You've been telling these men that Van Ling didn't get $5,000 from Craig for his mine claim. What makes you think that? Well, it... How should I know what Craig paid him? The transaction took place in your establishment. I don't remember everything that goes on here. A short memory is a pretty handy thing. I guess you wouldn't remember transferring the claim to Van Ling a month before he sold it to Craig. No, I don't. Do you know enough about territorial government to realize that all mining claim records are filed at Prescott? And are you keeping close enough track of the election to realize that Ed Craig has been campaigning up there? Look, Slaughter, if I gave away a worthless claim and Craig was foolish enough to buy it, it still doesn't involve me. No, of course it don't. Van Ling's the one who gets a hunk of the profit. Did Craig give that poor old coot the same story he gave these men? You ought to know. The only thing you don't know is that we struck silver at the Mary's Pride yeah, today. What? That's right, Gallagher. As rich a load as Ed Shiflin's tombstone strike. Oh, Maybe richer. Yes, uh, no, 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 wait a minute. That was my claim. <laughs> I only transferred it to Van Lynn, so he could... Consult it and sell it. Well, boys, we better get to the telegraph office. There's plenty of time before election to let the whole territory know that Ed Craig has made a million-dollar strike. And I'll telegraph Craig not to bother looking up any claim records. Gallagher's told us everything we need to know. Fellow citizens of Arizona, there are times when words just can't seem to... 
please try to tell them for me, Luke. I think they'd rather tell you, Ed. Boys, how do we feel about our new delegate to the Congress of the United States? Luke Slaughter of Tombstone, starring Sam Buffington, was written by Fran Van Hardisfeld and directed by William N. Robeson. Editorial supervision by Tom Hanley. Supporting Mr. Buffington were Joe DeSantis, Jack Moyles, Barney Phillips, and Junius Matthews. Next week at this time, we return with... Slaughter's the name. Luke Slaughter. When we meet up again, you can call me that. Luke Slaughter. It's Salt, an episode of Luke Slaughter of Tombstone from the spring of 1958, and tonight from the big broadcast on WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. We're getting into parlous territory now, because I have to introduce one of those subjects about which a great many people care very deeply and know a lot more than I do. The subject? Frank Sinatra. Few stars have risen faster and stuck around longer than Old Blue Eyes. After a number of big hit records with the Tommy Dorsey Band in 1940, 41, and 42, Mr. Sinatra struck out on his own. I'd like to say the rest is history, but nearly everything about Frank Sinatra is historic, including those war years. They changed the American music industry expanding the audience to include much younger listeners, the so-called Bobby Soxers, and the phenomenon of Sinatra mania. Mr. Sinatra turned out hit records during that time, and he was all over the radio, notably on Your Hit Parade and his own series, which ran through most of the 1940s and into the 50s. We're going to hear an example of one of those Frank Sinatra shows from 1945. By that year, the singer was well-established in his own variety series on the air, and he owned the Wednesday night 9 o'clock time slot. With comedy and music, you can imagine there are a few references that need explaining. To the victory bonds that were sold during the war and after, the exaggerated zoot suits that so-called hepcats wore so they'd look reet, to Mr. Sinatra's 
Slim Frame, the radio show Queen for a Day, the low-alcohol 3.2 beer, a couple of musicians, the composer and critic Deems Taylor and the singer Bing Crosby, who was both a hero and a rival to Mr. Sinatra, and the main character of the novel and movie The Prisoner of Zenda, Rudolph Rassendil. Quite a few popular songs are quoted, including You're My Everything, The Man I Love, and Johnny Mercer's lyric to The Strip Polka, with its refrain, Take It Off, Take It Off. Mr. Sinatra's guests on this occasion are two other accomplished singers, Ginny Sims and Francis Langford, and they all team up for a parody of the traditional blues song, Frankie and Johnny. And oh yes, you'll hear those bobby soxers in the audience screaming for Mr. Sinatra. From just a couple of months after the end of World War II, October 10, 1945, it's the CBS series Songs by Sinatra. Night and day You are the one Only you Need the moon Or under the sun Why, Francis Langford, I don't think Frankie's so thin. Why, you tell me he looked like a piccolo with a bow tie. Jenny Sims, I said no such thing. I merely said if Frankie were mine, I'd trade him in on a big job. Hey, well, who was ever responsible for that yakada yakada police button up there? Oh, Jenny Sims and Francis Langford. Mm. <laughs> hey. Hey, Francis, Francis. I'm scared. He's a wolf. Don't be scared, Jenny. This wolf's mother was frightened by a cocker spaniel. <laughs> Say, you gals talking about me? Oh, Mr. Sinatra, I, I'm afraid we've interrupted your broadcast, and well... <laughs> We're sorry. <laughs> Correction, dear, you're sorry. One of you seems slightly more enthusiastic than the other. Well, Frank, it's just that every week for the past two years, Jenny has phoned me and said, Francis, is this the week we go to see Frankie's broadcast? And every week I've said, no, Jenny, I'm sorry, Jenny, but no, Jenny. But this week, things are different. Different how? <laughs> we finally got our mitts on a couple of tickets. <laughs> <laughs> well, now that you two queens have finally paid us a visit, what you know, you've got to help with the housework. I'll take off on that tune I was about to sing, and then we'll talk over your duties. What are you warbling, Frankie boy? Well, this is a song that my father sang the day that I was born. He came to the hospital, looked into the incubator, and said, Hey, that's no you, hey. <laughs> I feel the autumn breeze It steals across my pillow As soft as a willow of the wind and in its song there is sadness because there's no you. The lonely autumn tree. How softly they're sighing, for summer is dying, they know. 
that in my heart there's no gladness because there's no you. The park that we walked in, the garden we talked in, how lonesome they seem in the fall. Stormy clouds hover. Falling leaves cover our favorite nook in the wall. In spring, we'll meet again. We'll kiss and recapture that summertime rapture we knew, and from that day. Francis and Ginny, I got a... Well, I've got a small worry. This boy is bucking Crosby, and he calls that a small worry. Now, wait a minute. <laughs> no, I mean it, honestly. You see, you two gals are big stars, and we want to give credit to your sponsors. But I've been wondering, could we do it musically? Oh, but yes, Frankie. We'd love to mention our sponsors musically. Well, swell. The Pied Pipers would be glad to back you up, and there's no charge for this, by the way. If half the time you don't feel right... And you don't sleep well at night. Use Borden products, and you feel like a load of dynamite. Francis, same tune, different sponsor, different network. If half the time your smile's a sight. If your molars are a fright, use Pepto-Bin each morning and night, and your teeth will be so bright. You know, it takes all the willpower I can muster, Buster, not to sing my 30-minute aria about old gold. <laughs> but honest, gals, in return for that plug, you said you'd pay off for a song. With a song, rather. So how's about if we start collecting, Francis? On the dotted line, Frankie. Axel, get in there and help collect your tent. Die. 
so the oceans run dry for heaven fall from the sky My mother always told me, she told me, son, whenever you get to feeling blue and low down on a molehill, well, just get that Francis Langford to sing for you and it'll make you feel like a big man. That was good advice. Well, Jenny Sims, have you picked out your number? Yes, but Frankie, I'm so nervous singing in front of you. Well, well, I'll turn around, honey. There, I've just turned around. Gee, like a broom straw, you look the same on both sides. Get me my hammer. <laughs> Come on, Sim. Simmer down and let's have a sample of that stuff that's got every bachelor from Upper Maine to Lower Cal going to hubba, 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 hubba. <laughs> well, Franklin, I declare you're getting to talk more like Dean Taylor every day. This girl fractures me. Sing. <laughs> Just kiss me once, kiss me twice. Kiss me once again It's been a long, long time Haven't felt like this, my dear Since can't remember when It's been a long, long time You never know how many dreams I dreamed about you Or just how empty they all seem Without you So kiss me once Kiss me twice Kiss me once again It's been a long, long time About you, 
without you. So kiss me once, kiss me twice, then kiss me once again. It's been a long. Wonderful, Ginny. Absolutely wonderful. Oh, thank you, Frankie. Frankie, thank you so much. I, uh... I think she likes me. Hey, Sinatra! More women. Oh. It's Junie Hutton and the Pied Pipers. What are you piping tonight, Pipers? I like a tune called Paper Moon. He likes a tune called Paper Moon. Let's see if June likes Paper Moon. Let's sing the tune, my darling. like the pleats on a zoot suit that was reaped. And sweet. But Frankie, Francis and I want to put a little pressure on you to sing all the things you are, okay? Well, this is one pressure group on which I definitely approve. You are the promised kiss of springtime that makes the lonely winter seem long. You are 
breathless hush of evening that trembles on the brink of a lovely song. You are the angel glow that lights a star. The dearest things I know are what you are. Someday my happy arms will hold you, and someday I'll know that moment divine when all the things you are are Ladies and gentlemen, the old gold corn-fed opera. Tonight's musical melodrama is a very tender love story, very tender. In fact, medium rare. It's entitled Frankie and Johnny. Uh, I mean Frankie and Ginny. Ginny will play Ginny and Frankie will play Frankie. And the other woman... That's me. The other woman, the sirene with store-bought clothes and darn little of them, (laughs) will be played by Frances Langford. We raise the old gold curtain to present... Frankie and Ginny. But you're doing me wrong. Cut, cut. That's the end of Act One. Now, Act Two. Frankie and Ginny are walking. Frankie has on a new suit. A Ginny bought for a hundred dollars. Just so my Frankie would look cute. He is my man. But he's doing me wrong. Well, Ginny, honey, here we are out walking, and I'm wearing this nice hundred dollar suit that you bought me. I wonder what people are saying about my new suit. Take it off, take it off, it will fit in the rear. Ginny, dear, <laughs> come over here and sit on my lap, what there is of it. Well, 
what you all got on your mind, Frankie boy. Never mind what I got on my mind, gal. It's what I got on my lap that counts. <laughs> but seriously, love boat. Ginny, dear, I've got to go now. And I won't be very long. And don't you call up for me, honey. No worry while I'm gone. You've got to date, my pal. Honey. With that Langford gal. Oh, please, Virginia, please. And no such of a thing. Now, you run along home like a good little gal. Don't be so suspicious and jealous. Me? Yes, yes, yes. Just trot home, gal, and stir up a couple of soup sandwiches, and I'll be around uh, consequently. All right, all right, Frankie. I'll go home. Bye, Frankie. Says here, laughs a la Rudolph Rosendale. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye, Ginny. Frankie thinks I'm going home, but I'm going to follow him. Will Frankie go down to the 3.2 parlor? Will Frankie meet that Langford gal? Tomorrow's episode of Queen for a Day will tell the tale. But no, I must know the answer tonight. So, I'm going down to the corner. Down where they sell that 3-2. Say to that fat bartender, Have you seen my Frankie boy? He is my man. But I think he's doing me wrong. Oh, ain't gonna tell you no story I ain't gonna tell a lie to you, Ma But your Frankie went by just an hour ago With that Francis Langford doll I'm right, he's doing me wrong You're right, he's doing you wrong I can see all the lawyers now Ticking blowflies in a bucket of buttermilk I made it <laughs> Act three Ginny is looking for her man, Frankie after Frankie leaves Ginny, he doubles back on South Clark Street. And as Act Three begins, Frankie is knocking on the door of the other woman's apartment, played by Frances Langford. I mean, Frances plays the other woman, not the apartment. Hello, tall, dark, and famished. Hi there, Frances. How's about a little date tonight? Hmm? You mean you want to go out and have some fun? Okay, two tons. It's Ginny. Hi. Want to buy a victory bond? Jenny, honey. Don't you, don't you, Jenny, honey, me, you, 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 why, you, you, hey? Well, Jenny, I thought you grabbed the taxi and went home. That's what you both thought, but I got me out on South Clark Street and threw a pane in the glass. Saw Frankie, my man, a loving that Francis Langford last Frank, if you're my man, you sure are doing me wrong. Listen, wholesome. What's the big idea of busting in here like this? And put down that gun, it may be empty. Jenny, your cause is hopeless. Frankie was your man, but one day he came along, this man you love. Not very big and strong. This man you love. Francis, Francis, how could you do this to me? You and I have been lifelong friends. Why, you knew that Frankie means everything to me. You knew that he's my everything. Rolled up into one. Rolled him out pretty thin, didn't they? <laughs> well, I guess there's only one way to settle this argument. That's right. We'll ask Frankie to choose. Yeah, tell us too, Tom. Which one of us are you sweet on? Well, gals... <laughs> well, gals, I'll tell you, it's like this. In the words of our theme song, Drive out my rubber-tied carriage. 
Drive out my rubber tired hack. I'm sweet on a chick in Milwaukee, and I'm gonna hurry back. Well, how do you like that? Well, Francis, he's ditching the both of us. Draw that gun, sister. He's trying to get away. Frankie sees trouble coming. Out the back door he does scoop. But Jenny takes aim with her pistol, and the gun goes. Thank you very much, Francis Langford and Ginny Sims. Folks, however, I got some bad news for you. She missed me. Well, sir, unless anybody wants to hem a hanky or bob for a couple of Jonathans, I think we can safely assume that it's time to put your dreams away for another day. And I will take their place in your heart Wishing on a star Never got too far And so it's time to make A new start Hey, we gotta get out of here On account of we gotta grab a train on account of we got to meet Gene Kelly in New York. On account of we've had so many requests to cut a small slice of anchors away that Navy has let Gene off for next Wednesday's show. October 27th is Navy Day, but next Wednesday will be Navy Gene Kelly's Day on the old gold show. So thanks, everybody, and bend your ears east next Wednesday. And hey, Gene Kelly, hey, there's one thing I want to ask you. First thing I get to New York, how many times have you seen anchors away? Next Wednesday and every Wednesday is the night for Songs by Sinatra, presented by Old Gold, whose choice tobaccos are specially conditioned to help guard against cigarette dryness and to give you more smoking pleasure. And say, don't let little annoyances get you down. Why be irritated? Light an Old Gold. The Frank Sinatra Show is written by Glenn Wheaton and produced and directed for Old Gold by Man Holliner. This is Marvin Miller speaking. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Songs by Sinatra. Frank Sinatra, that is, with his guest stars Francis Langford and Ginny Sims in the fall of 1945. It brings us almost to the end of the big broadcast tonight. We're going to close with a top 40 radio hit recorded nearly 65 years ago. We actually played it in February of this year and noted then that there's some disagreement about the exact day when the singer Tommy Edwards was born in 1922. Some sources say February 17th. Others say 100 years ago this week, October 15th. Well, this record was such a hit, selling some three and a half million copies, that it deserves to be played twice. Originally composed in 1911 by Charles G. Dawes, 
who would become Vice President of the United States and a Nobel Peace Prize winner, with a lyric and some musical changes by Carl Sigmund in 1951, it was recorded in June of 1958 by Mr. Edwards, and three months later, he became the first African-American artist to have a number one hit on the newly created Billboard Hot 100 chart. In honor of his centennial, here is Tommy Edwards singing one of the greatest oldies in Top 40 radio history, It's All in the Game. For co-producer Jill Arald Bailey and audio engineers Kenny Pirog and Mike Kidd, this is Murray Horwitz. Thanks for listening. Have a great week, and please join us here next Sunday. Good night, everybody. Many a tear has to fall, but it's all in the game. All in the wonderful game that we know as love. You have words with him and your future's looking thin, but these things your hearts can run. Once in a while he won't call But it's all In the game Soon he'll be there at your side With a sweet bouquet